Jeffrey. Ezekiel Elliott gets a block and busts to the end zone. It is Season 5, Episode 2, January 14, 2015, and I think that the new theme for Season 5, as we're 2 for 2, is on Tuesday, having <laughs> no idea who is going to be on the podcast. Yeah. I remember listening back to our open last week because I wanted to hear how douchey we sounded, and the responses has been... We would, I would have been more douchey, so you guys are okay. <laughs> Most of the feedback I got from listeners was, you were all right. I would have been worse. Okay. So, but I remember saying, it's a fluid situation. Right. And it is again today. Right, I know but- that John Hayden will be on to talk about Chicago Blackhawks prospect, you know, hockey player to talk about the World Junior Championships and the rivalry on ice in Madison Square Garden. And all that stuff, and I would like to get Katie Baker on, who was uh, live in Green Bay for the big football story we're going to talk about as a friend of the podcast. We'll see if we can work that out. Uh, S.L. Price from Sports Illustrated wrote one of the most talked about pieces of the week on John Elway, who's super relevant, and we'll talk about him and what he's done in the last few days. I'd like to get him. We'll see if we can work that out with schedules. And with the book club... I have no idea when Al Michaels is going to be. I heard it will happen, but that he might commit to it 10 minutes before he has time, and basically I better be ready. Okay. So hopefully that happens, but maybe it happens now. Maybe it happens next week. Maybe it happens after the Super Bowl. He's calling the Super Bowl. So that's part of the reason why we're not really sure what his schedule is because you know this this lady at the book, she doesn't know if he's going to want to do it before or after, but... Supposedly, Wertheim has pulled the necessary strings, and he's going to do it. It's just a matter of when he does it. The plus side is the listener knows more than we do right now talking because we'll have right. – they'll, they'll know coming into the podcast who's on the podcast. <laughs> right, because so. we're doing this. This is the way it goes is Don and I get together every Tuesday when he gets done with his day job to record this, and then we post it. We are talking about this before the show. A few years ago, we probably would have – Pushed forward a sh- a show that isn't the best show we could have done to get it done on With Tuesday. Anyone we could get, anyone we could get. I would just be working calls and and I don't want to throw any specific person <laughs> sure. under the bus as being that guy. But it has been times where Don and I are like, all right, I guess we'll do that spot, right? Because then we can get two interviews and it's a full show or a third interview and we can get it up before you leave. And what we've kind of become more comfortable with, especially since having our own studio which happened sometime, I think, season two or three-ish, yeah, somewhere true. in there. Uh, and, and as the show's evolved, it's like, well, there's no one forcing us to get it up on Tuesday. So if we can have a better show and put it up on Wednesday or even a better show and put it up on Thursday, let's do that to get the better show. Right. So that's kind of the route we've done. So we don't know who's going to be on for sure other than John Hayden. Uh, we do know that we're going to update the book club, and I have a couple funny stories about, about that in regards to <laughs> – and it regards to some of these books. You know what? Sometimes you have to – you have to. Uh, w- w- what's the thing about wishing? About you get what you wish for? What? 
careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. You just might like get, get it. it. Yeah. yeah, that happens with the book club sometimes. Oh, okay. You know, so uh, I will uh, talk about that a little bit in the book club update, and we'll end with uh, the last, last pick, official pick four of the year, uh, where we're going to pick two each. So it's still four. We'll make Super Bowl picks, but I don't think we're going to, you know, have a closing segment for the Super Bowl picks. Uh, but we'll make them, obviously, probably, sure. you know, during three things or whatever. But um, after this week, we'll transition back probably to one last thing to close the show. So. Now, I saw a tweet, and this is maybe something I should ask off the air, but we do our show prep on the air a lot of times. Yeah. Um, I saw a tweet that it was a pleasant experience, but are we ever going to hear what happened with Jim Norton? Okay, so sure, I can tell you the Jim Norton story. I didn't tell this last week. I don't believe so. Oh, okay. Unless, uh, unless you told it like in a segment I wasn't here for recording. but Okay, uh, well, if we told this, we'll tell it again, okay. I guess, if we did. So I emailed Jim Norton. I just went to his website. There's a spot in there where you can email, contact, him, contact yeah. or whatever. I laid a pitch out, sent him the email. He responded one or two days later with, Literally three words. Yes. When do you record? How much time do you need? Well, I guess it's more than three words. Three sure, right. Three things. He said, yes, he'd do it. When do you want to do it? And how much time do you need? I sent him a response. And this is like back in November. Sent him a response. Didn't hear from him. Waited. Waited. Sent him another kind of thing. Wait, it just never got – he just never got back to me. Mm-hmm. So Anthony and I went to the show, uh, one of the shows. He's here for like four days. Yeah, New Year's. And uh, yeah, he, it was uh, – so we went on the day after New Year's Day. So we went okay, January 2nd. Second, right. um, There's two shows, Saturday night. Ours was packed. We were at the early one. And the late one was coming in after us. It looked like it was packed too. Mm-hmm. So what he does is he goes out into the lobby after he's got a table set up uh, – Cub Soda Kenny standing there. Okay. You know, he's got CDs, T-shirts, DVDs. And he says, you can get in the line. You can buy something if you want. You can get a picture if you want. But when you get the picture, we're going to take it. And he puts them up on his website. He's got a brand new digital camera. Someone from the club stands there. She takes a picture. Okay, so you can go download your picture. So me and Anthony are standing there. Yeah, he gives them to you for free. He doesn't charge them like that. Just... It's easier, and I, I could so see it. you don't have it. to fumble with cameras. Yeah, you're not fumbling with your right. phone, and it's a better quality picture. And right. I'm sure he's more comfortable having a little bit of control with how the picture's taken or whatever. So I'm standing there. We saw some friends as we're walking out who were going to the next show. So I'm like, all right, do I go up to him and say something? About like, you know, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Because I wasn't sure, did I rush that follow-up email too quickly? You do, know, you, do you even get the impression he runs that? I did, yes. <clears throat> okay. Um, so I'm like, all right, I'll go say something to him. So the lady, the girl says, what do you want? And I said, I'm just going to buy a CD and I just want to shake his hand. Okay. No need for a picture. And uh, she's like, okay. So I'm the last guy in the line. And he, I can hear him say to the girl, what does he want? Because I got to take a piss. And she's like, yeah, he doesn't want a picture. He just wants to shake your hand. So while I'm buying the CD because I didn't want to go up there and not buy anything. Okay. Like – when I went to see Florentine, I wanted to go up to him and thank him for, for being the on the show. Right. But we didn't have any cash on us, and I figured they don't take credit cards. Oh, okay. So I just didn't because I didn't feel like I should get in that line. It, it just, I'm, I know a lot of people do, and they're not saying you have to get buy something to get in the line. I just didn't feel okay. right about it. So while I was buying the CD, Jim just sort of leaned in and was like, hey, I got to take a piss, but thanks, buddy. I was like, hey, 
uh, you know, I wanted to thank you, and I just wanted to ask. I said, I'm an annoying guy's been sending you all these emails from the podcast you agreed to be on, and uh, you just never got back. And I, I just want to know what happened. And he said, Oh, what, buddy? You know, tell me. He kind of didn't know exactly what he, what I meant. And I explained to him, you know, well, I'd sent you the email, and you had agreed to be on, and you asked a few more questions, and I, I could just never get back a hold of you. He was like, I'm sorry. He's like, I'm really bad at checking my email and getting emails back. Um, and since then, I, I've done a, a few things that I probably didn't know I was going to be doing, which is, I know is true because I listened to the radio show and he had filmed something that, uh, oh, okay. you know, and he had been out a few days where he'd, he'd leave the show after an hour to go film something. So I know he'd been working hard that month. Right. And he's preparing for a special. And he's like, look, I just didn't get to it. And he said, how much time do you need? And I said, you know, I, I, whatever, you know, 15 minutes, whatever makes you comfortable, you know, whatever you can can give up. And he's like, well, how about you come tomorrow in between the shows and we can do it right here. And I'm like, you know, I appreciate that, but it's not that big of a deal. You know, I'll send you an email when I get home. You can hang on to it. And if you want to come on and talk sometime, that's great. If not, next time you're around, I'll, I'll try again. Yeah. And he said, no problem. You know, to me, he was uh, trying to make it right and – but to me, it's not the right environment for what we do. It no, wouldn't have been right. anything of value. Okay. You know, to sit with him in that bar in between shows with all that noise, it wouldn't have been anything of value uh, to record. And and also, he doesn't want to do that at that moment. Right. He wants to shake his hands, sell his shirts, and get himself ready for the next show. Sure. And I didn't want to intrude on that time. So yeah, if we did talk about this before, then I zoned out for a long time while listening. Yeah, we must I, not I, have. I don't think we did. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. So, I mean. Just didn't work out. It just didn't work out. I don't know why. He didn't know why. It just sort of sounded like he just never got back to email. What would your angle have been with him? I know he's a Cowboys fan, but. Uh, well, I think what I said to him in the pitch was, look at. I'd love to talk to you about radio, interviewing. You're the main interviewer on the show. Okay. Where we do interviewing. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to give you a chance to promote the shows. There's a lot of them. I know some are going to sell out without us, but you know we've had other comedians in. Florentine's been in. Artie yeah. Lang's been in. You know we're fans of uh, the show. We'd love to talk to you about that. And and then I made a joke. And of course we'd love to talk to you about your passion for the Cowboys and yeah. the great team that they have this year. Right. You know, and, and like I said, I mean, he got back to me within 48 hours of the pitch and said, yeah, sure, uh, when and how long. And then, you know, I guess probably life happened, and he's a busy guy, and he just never had a chance to get back to me. And, um, you know, when I asked him about it in person, he said he would, uh, he was willing to make it up to me the next day. Sure. But I just didn't. Yeah. I didn't want to intrude on that time, and I, also I didn't think we'd get anything of value. All right. So there. So that's the Jim Norton story. That's right. All right, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, uh, three things. We're obviously going to start with some football. There's some great football this weekend. I was away in New York City, uh, but I was able to watch uh, quite a bit of it. Would you call the first game a classic, Don? Was the Patriots and Ravens game a classic? I, it was close. It was in the in the ballpark. Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw some tweets and whatnot to that effect. Like, 
uh, this one goes down immediately as a classic. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, why not? Patriots and uh, Ravens play good football games in the playoffs. They really do. And that was the one you lost and I won. We both went 3-1 and one in our picks, and obviously we'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, you know what? I knew the Ravens would play this game close. They always do. Yeah, they're never a team I give a ton of respect to, and I think I even said that last week. They're, they always kind of bore me a little bit. But they do play good games, I guess. It always sucks when you go out making history, being that first team to ever give up two 14-point two leads. leads in a playoff game and to lose like that. That sucks. It's a bad way to go out. Did it ever feel over to you, though? No, I mean, it was so early. Yeah. And they, they erased that first one so quickly. Yep. And then Baltimore built that second one so quickly that it just felt like, wow, this is going to be back and forth and a lot of points. And I don't know if I've ever... When they work, I guess, gimmick plays like the one the Patriots pulled off, they they look so perfect and pretty. You wonder why you don't do them more. But they just caught them in the – and Brady said it, I think. We, we got the perfect look for it. We called it the perfect time. They were kind of blitzing on that side. All I had to do was clear the heads and the arms, and that was going to be a touchdown, and he did. Uh, I believe it was the first ever white-to-white-to-white touchdown in the history of the NFL. <laughs> I, I have no idea. It's a joke. But, uh, yeah, it was a great game to start the weekend. Uh, I, I said it beforehand, too, or on last week's podcast, that there's a guy that I, I never really believe in, again, on the Ravens, and that's Joe Flacco. He he might be just he's Eli Manning elite. Yeah, well, he's a better regular season quarterback than Eli Manning. Is Eli he? Manning might be the – well – yeah, I don't know. Is that proven? I, 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 don't, I, I'm I asking. guess I don't know. I don't know. Is he? I imagine his record is better. I guess that's what I'm basing that on because his teams don't fall. I mean, Eli. Is it? I mean, when they won the Super Bowl, they were on the road three games. I mean, this isn't a team that's always getting buys as 13-3 and three champions of their division. No, but I mean, Eli misses the playoffs entirely. Did he win? How many times has he been in it and not won the Super Bowl? But again, I mean, if we're debating Eli Manning versus Joe Flacco, I don't think that's a debate of how many times did the Ravens or the Giants make the playoffs. I just think they're very similar in the in that sense that they play their best play. They they make their best play in the um, in the playoffs, and that's where they make their money. and And uh, Flacco was good in the game, and uh, he too was good though, like you said, super early. What, when did they put up? I mean, it was all all four touchdowns. Well, I mean, the third was in the third quarter. Barely. The fourth is in the fourth quarter. Yeah. The third quarter. But they yeah. were really quick, and then something happened, and they just couldn't Maybe score some it. adjustments or whatever at the yeah. half. But it was a great game, and uh, Patriots move on, and you're kind of thinking, all right, well, we're probably, gonna, we're probably, going, to, um, probably going to be looking at New England, New England and Denver, Denver and yep. one more. Uh, Brady and, and Peyton, so we can skip to the fourth game. And obviously, it didn't go that way. The, the Broncos had nothing. No, that game was actually a little boring. They had nothing. Who would have thought that a game between Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning would kind of be a defensive showdown? Yeah, and it was because the, the – the, the, okay, so Manning's come out and he said there's a quad injury. Yeah. You're watching that game saying he's not right. Yep. He's not right. He's obviously not right. There's people – He's either just completely done – or there's an injury because there's football people smarter than me though that say his uh, his troubles can be seen further back than when they're reporting the quad injury. Like he he might be done. Yeah, maybe. 
I wouldn't. If I was the Bills, I'd still welcome him in yes. with a party wagon and give him twenty five million dollars for the absolutely. year. Absolutely. If he wanted to play for one or two yeah. years, I would take him and then draft a kid or whatever. But absolutely, without a doubt. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, he might be done. I don't know. We'll have to see it. I'm not in the business of writing off a guy like Peyton Manning. I can tell you that. No, much. I wouldn't either. The, the strange thing to me is if you're the he had uh, nothing on Sunday though. I'll say that. No, and what's strange to me is in a game that that's kind of kind of tight like that, he threw for 46 times, and the best player on Denver was C.J. Anderson, and he only touched the ball 18 times. Yeah, and that was a big mistake. They didn't run the yeah, ball enough. He I had mean, one of the great playoff runs of all time on fourth down. You know, to keep yeah, a drive yeah. when the game was still winnable. Uh, you know, he was stopped dead. Colt five yards out of the line of scrimmage and converted that. Um, but they just didn't have it. Luck was good, not great by any means. No. Uh, but good enough. And um, the Denver defense, I mean, they're so easy to say. You know, Peyton Manning, that was his ninth one and done in the playoffs. Yep. Uh, it's so easy to want to blame all those on him. Where was Von Miller? Did anyone ever touch the jersey of Andrew Luck? Did anyone ever ruffle his feathers at all? I didn't see it. Um, yeah, it, and you bring up the stat about nine one and duns. Uh, people use that as a knock against him. The one means he thing, was there nine times the plus. One, plus. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing, uh, I think it was Mike Show brought this up when I heard it on his radio show. He said, "How many times was that the second round of the playoffs? Because he had a bye, right? So immediately you're playing better competition. So I, I think he's a little bit unfairly bashed for the guy that's." I mean, he's no worse. There's a lot of questions with best quarterback of all time. A lot of questions with him. And and obviously with Denver now is John Elway made the decision to fire everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think the way they worded it was John Fox uh, and them agreed to part ways or something like that. Yeah. So everyone cleared out and uh, it's going to be three offensive coordinators in four years in Denver for Manning. If he wants to start over, does it matter? Maybe not. I I, I wonder about that. I assume that when the coach comes in, the coach says, all right, what direction are we going to go with Peyton in this offense? I don't think the coach comes in and says, all right, we're running read option, and I'm bringing a read option coordinator, <laughs> right, and, right. and you either learn read option or you go somewhere else. I don't think it works that way. But they'll have to sit down with Peyton, and Peyton will have to sit down with his family and his agents and whatever and decide if uh, if that was enough. And if it was, he's one of the greatest of all time. He doesn't need another year. He doesn't have anything left to prove. No, I mean, he's he'd argu- love to win two rings. He's arguably the best of all time, and he's probably no worse than, what, the third best Yeah, of he's all in the time. top five, locked. He doesn't need anything else. He'd love a second championship, I'm sure, but, you know, Someone else- he ran into a juggernaut in 2009, unfortunately, with the Saints, and he just couldn't <laughs> get that one, you know? And sometimes that happens. A guy like Tracy Porter steps in front of your pass, and you have to get on the plane and lose her. So I'm sorry to Peyton for that. Uh, so we'll talk about uh, Colts versus Pats in pick four. You know what? I, I don't know if I ever brought this up. Do you think the Saints win that game if the Colts or the Broncos no, – who was it? Colts. Colts. Oof. Go for it on that. They already went for it on fourth down at once in that drive. It was at the end of the first half. And then they, for whatever reason, decided not to go for it on fourth down again and kick an easy field goal. If they go for it on fourth Okay, the there, Colts only kicked one field goal and they missed it. So I think you might want to reconsider the facts okay, of the game. The- yeah, I think you're a little foggy on it. One thing that happened that the Colts probably regret is when the Saints went for it on fourth and one at the goal line and missed it, they went run, 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 punt, and gave the ball back to the Saints with time for the Saints to kick a walk-off first-half field goal. Maybe that's um, what I'm thinking of. To make it 10-6. 
Do I think we lost because we went into the locker room 10-3 instead of 10-6? No, but if they really get a drive going there and we go in 17-3, we might not come back and win okay. that. Yeah, I remember. I thought That's what you're thinking. Was, I'd have to look but, at I mean, this is from you. the one-yard line that they're, they, they went run, run, run. Right, right. You know, they weren't driving by any means and right. gave up on something. But, um, yeah, I'd have to look up the play-by-play to see what I'm... Yeah, I don't know. I, just, I remember thinking. it looked like they were going to run away with it really early, and then Pierre Garcon had a huge drop on a third down where he might not have been caught. That might have made it seventeen nothing. Uh, Colts fans love bringing that up, but I also love bringing up uh, that Colston on the Saints' first drive had a huge drop on third down uh, that cost the Saints points. But no one wants to hear about that right now. Okay. Uh, the NFC games. The first one was not Dallas. So what was the first one? Seattle and Carolina. Carolina did themselves proud. They hung in there. Yeah. They did the best they can, but they were never winning that game. Didn't, uh, no. Even when it was 14-10 in the fourth quarter, come on, they're not winning. No, no. I mean, it, 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 that game played out pretty much the way we expected it to, two good defenses. Yeah, they did their best. Yeah. They hung in there. And then the other one, it was uh, the really the story of the week. Just while we're trying to get Katie Baker on, she was there. See if we can get some first-hand impression of what happened, what went down there. But uh, so, what did you think, Don? Uh, did Des Bryant catch the ball, or did the Cowboys uh Yeah, I mean, it sure, looked like, it. It sure looked like he caught it. I mean, I don't know why they just don't say... I mean, I know they want black and white rules, but when the referee comes out and starts... I've always heard football move. What did he say? A, rule, a move common to, to the game? They need to clarify like that? that because they're... Reaching for the end zone should be a football move. Yeah, and if you actually... If that's what he didn't do, I disagree with that immediately. Did you have or happen to hear anyone read the actual rule? Because they they give the rule, and then they give... Like, they say a rule... They do say what the guy said, a move common to the game or common to football or whatever, and then they list some in parentheses and then say, etc. <laughs> So right in the rules is that center. There's area, room for gray area. Well, basically what happened, so he went up for the ball. And since he went up, when he comes down, he needs to complete the process of the catch. And he can do that one of two ways, either by getting two feet down with possession um, and then making a move common to the game, or then by going to the ground and holding it through the catch. Which is ridiculous. You know so if, they- you complete, if you complete the catch and then go to the ground... And drop it, it's still complete because it's a second. It's the second. It's a new move, and then it's just like the ground caused a fumble. I've always thought that was ridiculous. Because what if a guy caught like a screen pass? I mean, I won't exaggerate, but say a guy catches a screen that's thrown out a little in front of him, like, like the ten yard line, and he's kind of stumbling the entire way to the end zone, and then falls and drops the ball. Like he, what if he takes ten steps but was kind of tripping the whole way? Well, if he didn't leave his feet, it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Right. So if this rule only comes into play when you leave your feet. All right, so here's how you fix the rule. Down. When you hit the ground, if you have control of the ball with two feet, that's it. It's a catch. Don't worry about completing the act. When is that going to come into play? When a guy tiptoes the sideline and it falls out of bounds, then that's a different circumstance. I've been very consistent with this, whether it's with my team, another team, the team playing my team, the Cowboys. The rules on what is and what isn't a catch are far too complicated. Yep. 
Uh, they need to be simplified. We need to be able to understand what is and what isn't a catch. It needs to be pretty consistent whether it's caught at the five-yard line, it's caught on the sideline, it's caught in the end zone, near the end zone. I mean, this is... We need to simplify that. And I can tell you that Peter King said that this rule is one of the most hotly contested rules with the comp- competition committee every year. And it would seem like this will finally be the year where they will get some change made. Well, didn't they change it after the Kelvin Johnson touchdown? They made some change, I think. Right. But, you know, it's the it's the most uh, contested rule that they have. You know, there was a change after the the Buccaneers and the Rams game and a catch that wasn't. And, uh, you know, where now the ball could hit the ground, but if you kind of have the ball, it's okay. Yeah. You know? So, too complicated. And, yeah, it's, it's probably bullshit. Uh, they didn't lose because of it, but their chances of winning were greatly hurt because of it. Yeah, at least we don't have to hear that they lost because of Romo again or something like that. He played a really he had a great game. season. Yeah, and he battled for them. Really, I mean, he's not he's not healthy. This isn't an original take either, but Romo could probably be the league MVP. He put up one of the best passing seasons I think ever. But Demarco Murray had such a good year that he's probably they're probably gonna vulture each other's votes and Aaron Rodgers is going to win that which is right. the other yep. side of that and he put on an all-time performance as well sure you know limping around on one leg and that makes for such great theater when you have a guy who's got an injury like that where it's really visible you know and he's just out there he's just slinging it I mean that second half you know he was did the ball hit the ground I mean I don't know I mean he was just and that's the thing like if Dallas scores there You'd think in some way, okay, Aaron Rodgers, they make the two-point conversion. Aaron Rodgers has got the ball down three. He's going to get them into at least field goal range. If they don't make the the uh, conversion, he's going to get them within field goal range with the chance to walk off and win. Yep. So that's why I say it didn't cost them winning, but uh, it, it greatly affected their chances. And then, you know, to more to show that it must have been Green Bay's day, the last third down conversion is a tip ball that somehow finds its way into the hands of uh, Randall Cobb for first down. So, uh, look at we got a great championship weekend, and uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. But before we move on to the NFL, or move on from the NFL, we got to talk about the Bills a little bit and ask yeah. you, Don, uh, when you heard the news that Rex Ryan was going to be the coach, I think I noticed uh, you read it as good news. Yeah, why not? Um, the Bills are usually a team that takes retread quarterbacks or quarterbacks like. I'll be honest, I was excited for Doug Marone. I think I talked about this last week. He, I thought maybe he was Chip Kelly light, but he wasn't. He turned out to be just like any other quarter or coach they've had. Uh, Rex Ryan immediately makes the Bills, at the very least, interesting. Uh, his press conference tomorrow is must-listen radio for me, so I'll be, I'll be plugged Wednesday. in at work. Yep, yeah, Wednesday. Wednesday. Sorry, yep. yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. I mean, Jim or yeah, Schwartz is going to leave. They kind of mutually agreed. They met together and difference in philosophy, whatever. He's going to leave, but I don't worry about that. People freaked out when Petten left for Cleveland and they improved. And Rex has never had a defense with the Jets that was worse than like the 11th best defense in the league. So I think the Bills will be the best or second or third best. Defense would you in the have league been happier if they would have just? 
stuck with the defensive coordinator they had who did an absolutely amazing job and brought in a, a coach to cover the offensive side of the ball and maybe make improvements there. Yeah, I guess I don't know who, though. Okay, uh, so just not a good enough candidate on that side. Right. And so this you is, just go for the best coach you can hire. Right, and this is the first time the Bills, I think, have hired a head coach that was a coach of another team in probably 40 years, like longer and, than my lifetime. And so. now this is an example, the first example on the Bills' side, of everything's changed now about your team because the Bagulas own it. Yeah. No more is this a place where you're going to have to try to get a coordinator who will just take a job because there's only 32 of them. Right. I think in a good way. Disprove the Bills. Any coach was an option for the Bills. Sure. I think the, the Bills have proven this now twice. Although Pagula wasn't the owner when they got Mario Williams. But uh, no. This is the second. This to me is kind of similar to that, where I know Rex Ryan's first choice probably wasn't Bill, the Bills. It was probably Atlanta. They're uh, for all the reasons everyone's laid out. They're in a division that's up for the grabs. It seems sure. like yeah. they've got the quarterback. Quarterbacks in place. there. Uh, Julio Jones. Yeah, they've they got, got pieces. Stars. They got pieces. The problem is what he's good at fixing, and that's defense. Right. So the idea that he probably went in with a frame of mind that. I want to coach Atlanta or maybe San Francisco or somebody, and he landed on the Bills. Tells me that they wind and dined him and wooed him. And hey, I think it's two things. I think they said, "Hey, here's a white envelope." Well, sure, yeah. And there's a couple more million in that yeah, to come here. We know that. And also, I think they said, "Hey, those Jets didn't do you right. You you gave them some of the best years of your life. You took them to two AFC Championship games, and they never gave you the pieces on the offensive side of the ball." To really win. We already got one piece here. And Sammy Watkins. And we're going to keep building that offense. We're going to get those pieces to you. And you have a chance to take it to them. Two times a year. Keep them out of the playoffs. You can't do that in Atlanta in the AFC. In the NFC. You're only going to see them every once in a while. So I think to a guy like Rex Ryan, that's attractive. Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think he's a a gamer. He wants to beat the... He doesn't want to run away from Brady and Belichick in New England. And he wants to beat... His old team, I'm sure that's attractive to him. There's a there's a loser mentality here, and we live here, and we know it. Yep. And there's always going to be people out there going to tell you why what a Buffalo team did was wrong. Okay. Or why it's going to hurt them. Sure. Right? I mean, even though... I think that's an easy mentality to have anywhere. Anyone yeah. that tells you like... And it's, it's, very, it's raging here right now. Oh, yeah. Because of circumstance. 15 years without even one playoff game. And uh, a hockey team near the bottom for a few years in a row now. Uh-huh. You know, it's a mentality that's just raging. It's it, it exists. It's like uh, it's like if you got the chicken pox, you're you're always eligible to get the shingles on. <laughs> yeah. You know, but in a lot of people people that that shingles, it just stays quiet. It's there, but it just kind of stays quiet. Buffalo's full blown out shingles right now. Oh yeah, with that mentality, and I think that. Like last year when the Sabres didn't win the lottery. It's like, oh, so Buffalo. And you say to people, well, Ford is taking a defenseman. Yeah, you're getting the Sabres are never anyway. picking that, and they're picking the number one forward in the draft, so don't worry about it. Right. Oh, wow. Oh, Sab- oh, but, oh. People, people are convinced right. there's like a conspiracy. So it's always – it's never – and in this year, if they, you know, if they don't win the lottery and they finish last, oh, yep. we got to have Jack Eichel. Yeah. The guy who, you know, in 96 of the last 100 drafts would have been first overall pick. <laughs> so, look at it. It's part of it. But I think 
as someone who's very impartial, why not use the money you have now and uh, get a guy that everyone who needed a coach wanted? Right. Why not? Right. I I like him from an from just being an interesting guy standpoint, first and foremost, and uh, he doesn't touch the offense anyway. So I guess it's more about the coordinator he brings in as far as how the team looks on the field. The uh, I was watching the Golden Globes, and you know when people win the awards and they've talked too long, the music starts. Yeah, ours is the opposite. We're the opposite. Yeah, the the music stops to tell us to kind of speed things along. So anything else football wise? No. The national championship game was played last night, and Ohio State defeated Oregon uh, to win the national championship. The first one, uh, watch the game. It was a great game. Uh, you know, uh, Ohio State dominated the game, but because they kept putting the ball on the ground, uh, they weren't getting ahead as far as they could have, and they were opening the door for Mariota and Oregon over and over again. And it looked like in the third quarter they had opened the door one too many times. Oregon had just scored a long touchdown uh, to get to the game within six, or no less, four, to get the game within four, 21-17. And then Florida State fumbled again and gave basically a red zone possession to Oregon. Ohio State, but yeah. Oh, what did I say? Florida. Fuck, who's Florida. Florida State. What does Florida have to do with anything? <laughs> why do we make these mistakes? This is what happens. This is this is why we end up getting emails two years later, <laughs> you know, from people saying, you fucking idiot. I know. I could let it go. No, don't everyone, let it go. Everyone listening oh. would know what you're talking about, but yeah, then you would get that email. Where do I like, come up with that? Florida. Florida why, why is Florida there? I don't know. So anyway, State, yeah, it, looked like they, it looked like they were going to, uh, to take a lead, and Florida, Ohio State held to a field goal uh, 21-20. And uh, then on the next drive, made it 28-20 and never looked back. Uh, national champions. And I asked you, Don, how many quarterbacks deep is that team? Yeah, no kidding. I, I, Would their fourth string guy want it? Their fifth? I mean, they just got – I mean, in the spring or the summer, it was Braxton Miller. Uh, he went down, so they're screwed, right? And then JT Barrett comes in. He challenges for a Heisman, and then he goes down, so they're screwed. But then there's a third guy to come in and go 3-0. and Beats uh, Alabama. Beats Alabama, Wisconsin, and Oregon. And I just wonder, was there a fourth guy there, a fifth guy? <laughs> yeah, and I was mean... Was that the cutoff? We talked about this before we came on. The the kid has already... Cardale Jones has already said that he's not ready for the NFL. That's a very mature thing for him to say, but he had to think about it. And there had to be some talking from the coaches, like, look, I know that there's probably a little bit of... Uh, there's got to be stars in your eyes right now. Thinking about going to the NFL. I mean, he probably would. It's not going to be an early pick. The best case scenario is that Braxton Miller leaves, transfers. The other kid's not ready, and this kid could play one more year, move on to the NFL, and then JT Barrett can play the next year, move on to the NFL. And they all get their one more year to show that what they have. You think the coach. And all move on. That would be the best case scenario. I don't know if that's what happens. Right. Do you think the coach talked to him about that or did he come to it on his own you know, I mean, it's really quick i think this usually last night they only had 48 hours right because it's so late you know so they only had two days left okay so it's going to be quick regardless i mean mariota who hasn't technically declared yet is running out of time as well unless he has already declared you know yeah uh but um look they're usually these guys are pretty good about telling the player to do what's in his best interest and kind of laying out what their opinion is of that. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you hear stories of like, 
Nick Saban was selfish, and he made me come back to Alabama for another year when I could have left and been the first pick. Usually you hear these guys right, right. They talk about, I went in, I talked to Coach Saban. I'm just using him as an example. And Coach Saban and I talked about, you know, maybe the NFL was the best thing for me at this time. When you're a program like Ohio State or Alabama or wherever a lot of these kids, there's another guy coming out the back door. Anyway. Sure, right, yeah. You know, so they're not going to stay. In football, there's only so many snaps, right? There's only so many snaps in, in those careers, so. You know, but hey, oh, I hope it works out for all three of them because, uh, you know, they they've all man stepped up, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Braxton Miller, who unfortunately played an undefeated season when they were on probation, you know, so he doesn't oh, get to God. play in playoffs after leading them to undefeat, not losing, and then he he doesn't get a chance. He had to be thinking last night. This was me and my turn and my team doesn't get that chance, and then J T. Barrett fills in for Braxton and. Puts up a Heisman Trophy-like season. He gets injured the worst time in the Michigan game. And then, you know, this kid, sophomore, who just barely got beat out by Barrett uh, in the spring to be the starter, just missed. You know, hung in there with them. And and he played three great games. And obviously, Elliott rushing for 200 yards in all three of those games took a little bit of the pressure off. You know, Elliott's a stud running back. I mean, that guy glides. Down the field, I, yeah, yeah. you know, talk about stock going up. But hey, the BCS would have given us Alabama versus Florida State. Instead, we got the two highest-rated cable programs of all time on New Year's Day in the two playoff game semifinals, and then we got a very solid, which you even said you watched bits and parts of, uh, which is good for you. <laughs> Uh, well, you know what? I probably game. would have stuck with it. I thought it was going to be boring. At 21-7, I was like, well, let's see what's on the DVR. Plus, it was kind of late, and I got a kid. Yeah, they started time. too late. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, say 30 and half times like 45 minutes in college football. Right. You know, I think I made some sarcastic tweets about, like, you know, let's go. Right. But, um, you know, Jerry World is the best place for a big event like that. It's so big, and the TVs are so big, and there's so many people there. It just screams, like, huge game. Now, it's a I, great spot. But now next year, they might ruin it. Because now next year, those semifinals are on New Year's Eve. So are as many people going to sit around on New Year's Eve at 8.30 to watch a college football semifinal? Or are they going to go to dinner and go out and drop the ball and kiss their wife and all that stuff you do on New Year's? They're going to do it at 8.30 still? I, I guess. Yeah, that, that'd be rough. I, I mean, I don't know the times, but... I, I, had a, I have a comment that... Uh... Sounds like a comment, like more than something my wife would make. Oregon is yellow and green. They wear all silver jerseys yesterday. I'm not yeah, blaming guess, that on the I loss. I guess Nike made that decision. I'm not blaming that on the loss because that'd be ridiculous. They but. got outclassed in the uniform department by Ohio State. Oh, yeah. Ohio State had the classic scarlet and gray. Silver. Yeah, gray. I don't know what they I think they it's say. scarlet and gray, gray is what yeah. they say. Classic Ohio State jerseys on, and Oregon looked like clowns. The yeah, O's all silver on the back of their helmet. Yeah, it was very very strange. All right, last thing, a few hockey things we wanted to mention. Uh, first thing tonight, Dominic Kashuk is going to have his number finally retired in Buffalo. Uh, Don, you tweeted or posted on Facebook, whatever. He's the greatest Buffalo sports athlete of all time, and if he's not, he's in the top few. If he's not, it's probably OJ, and he uh, murdered two. Yeah, people. or if you want to make a case for Jim Kelly, yeah, maybe you know a Hall of Famer at the most important position, obviously sure. the most irreplaceable uh, Buffalo athlete of all time, because 
Bills and have had how many quarterbacks since he retired? Yeah, too many. Uh, or you I, know, Gilbert Perot, who were not old enough to truly measure his greatness. Sure, and I, I've read a book, a hockey book that just counts down the top fifty or so players. Uh, and and they, you're shocked at how high, high Perot is, right? He's high yeah. up, and he said they kind of almost make excuses for him, like in a positive way, saying like he played in a terrible era where if he played like in the what was it, the eighties? When there was scoring everywhere, or maybe the early nineties, he would have he would have dominated. He so. scored over five hundred goals. He took the Sabers to one cup, and he's the best center they've ever had. Hashik, arguably up, the best goalie, ever. put up the best numbers at his position. Took him to one cup. You know, I mean, very similar. You can make a case for both guys. I thought about that today. That that uh, th- we're getting long. I know, but yeah. uh, we've talked fondly about the Drury Breer Sabers team. But I, I was like a grown adult at that point. I think the Hashik teams will always be my favorite teams. Uh, kind of an underdog always. They had one superstar really on the team in Dominic Hashik. And then right. Michael Pekka might have been their next best player, who's my favorite player ever, but he's not exactly oozing talent as far as just goal scoring or anything goes. And guys like Dixon Ward were on your first line or second line. And that those are my favorite teams ever because uh, – where I was probably in my life. Uh, one thing about Buffalo is we're trying to be this hockey destination. Yeah, so far so good. And the too. Harbor Center uh, is something new here. And they hosted their first, I guess, big event in the Ladies World Junior. I believe it was under 18 championships. Or was it under 20s? I'm That I don't know. I want to say it's under 18. That might be right. Uh, but uh, the final was U.S.-Canada, just as the doctor ordered. Sold out on Monday. Uh, downtown Buffalo in the United States did win that one over Canada. In overtime. In overtime. So congratulations to the U.S. ladies on that. And uh, Buffalo for putting on a great event. It's beautiful down by the arena now with uh, an outdoor skating rink and the Harbor Center. Improvements to the HSBC or the – that's a long time ago. First Niagara Center. And it's just a great area. Yeah, they they really need to get a draft and an all-star game down. Draft is coming. I think that is. They got the draft. So and then hopefully an all-star game soon and and hopefully another World Juniors. I know they put in a bid for 2018. Uh, World Junior Championship, so hopefully we can get that. And NCAA tournament would be nice. All that stuff. That's what they want to build down there, a hockey destination, all the big hockey events. Uh, Buffalo's in the rotation the same way that, you know, Atlanta or Dallas is in the rotation for a Final Four sure, or whatever. Uh, and then I want to mention that uh, I spent my weekend in New York City for the second annual rivalry on ice, uh, which is Harvard versus Yale in a non-conference hockey game in the middle of uh, the year right in Manhattan in the world's most famous uh, sports arena at Madison Square Garden. And... Uh, much like the first one, Yale uh, dominated Harvard. I think the shots were forty-two to twenty. Uh, the score was four to one, and it could have been seven or eight to one. Harvard's goalie was great, uh, honestly great uh, in a game that his team got dominated. Harvard's good too this year. Right? Uh, they were ranked third going into yeah, the game and yeah. in in, in number one in the pairwise, which is what really matters. But now that's twice that Yale's beaten them, right? Yeah, the only two losses they have, and uh, we'll have one of the stars of the Yale team who also played on the uh, World Junior team. Uh, John Hayden later in the show. All right, so that's three things. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with one of the best guests uh, ever booked in the history of the sportscasters. Our next guest is from Stanford, Connecticut and is a graduate of the University of North Carolina. 
He's received multiple honors for his writing, including two Associated Press Sports Editors Awards. He's one of the best writers to ever appear on the Sportscasters, and we're honored that he's making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. A warm Sportscasters welcome to the great SL Price. How are you doing today, Mr. Price? Good. Happy to be here. I'm happy I'm to have you. I'm a five-timer, five-timers club. Five-time club. It's amazing for us. Thank yeah. you so much. I appreciate that. Sure. Uh, last time me. last time we had you on, it was fun. We did the, the thing with um, you and your friend, and we kind of talked Cuban baseball and the two books. I thought that was mm-hmm. I thought that was great. Really enjoyed that. So, thanks for being a part of that as well. Um, so I have to ask you this. I was really excited to ask you this question. We'll just start right with it. So your piece on Elway was kind of the talk of Twitter last week. I mean, every time I signed on, I noticed someone saying, "You got to check out this piece by at by SL Price." And I thought, I wonder if. He he's enjoying this a little bit because in the past when maybe you had a piece like this, you weren't on Twitter to know that everyone was talking about one of your pieces. Did you find that as a positive of us, of uh, Twitter, um, despite, you know, kind of joining it, kicking and screaming a little bit that, hey, at least there's a, you know, there is some, because uh, it can be a, a dark place, obviously, but uh, it must have been nice to um, to enjoy that last week if you did. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's always nice to have feedback. I mean, you know, however it comes, it's, it's great. Uh, you know, I mean, I, you obviously know my uh, feelings about Twitter. I yeah. think it's, a, you know, in many ways a, a fairly destructive and, and mindless place. But um, but overall, uh, you know, it's obviously a great way to get the story to be circulated around. And, uh, and uh, you know, overall, people are, are incredibly kind. So I, I, you know, I, I, what human being is not gonna like that? You know, I mean, right? Sure. <laughs> it's, what, it's basically like getting a letter or, or an email saying, you know, hey, I appreciate this, and, and there's no question that it, it's uh, it's always gratifying to know that somebody's reading it. That, that's really what it comes down to: that someone's reading it, and that and that maybe they got a little bit of what you were trying to do. So, so sure, it's just another tra- it's, it's just another form of transmission. I mean, it's. It, uh, you know, I, I don't think Twitter is all that special. I, I find it astonishing how how enthralled you you are with it. I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it, it's, just, it's like every time we speak, and it's fine. I mean, I'll, I'll happily talk about it. But I mean, it's, to me, it's just another tool. I mean, it, it, it's like any it's like anything. It's a, it's, it's a good hammer, and you can use it for you know good at hammering you know a nail in, and it's great. And uh, then it can be used for destructive purposes also. And, and so. It's not uniformly good. It's not uniformly bad. It's just when used uh, well, it's, it's it's great. And, you know, that's that. It's just another tool for me. Yeah. No, I feel bad that I, I come off when I speak to you as like some kind of Twitter stockholder because it's not that. Um, it's just that uh, it's just, like you said, been a theme uh, somehow in our discussions. And uh, I was I, I, I thought about it when uh, when your piece was going around. Because this happens, you know, every couple of weeks there'll be something. And, and I talked to Tommy Tomlinson about it in the summer when his piece about, uh, oh, I can't think of the quarterback. He played at Kentucky. and uh, at, Jared Lawrence. Uh, yeah, at, his piece was going around. And he said, you know, the coolest thing about it was just how many of uh, colleagues and writers I respected were the ones um, sending it back. Because you also often don't aren't able to get feedback from, from colleagues because you're all on different spots and working different things. And so... I don't yeah, mean- but there's a there's a danger in that. I mean, I I, I think that I think that, and, and and I say this as, I mean, 
one reason I I <laughs> I, I don't want to worry about what, what people think. I mean, I, I, I know I, I'm human and I'm going to, but I think it gets in the way of the work. I think, I think sitting around and, 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 and wondering, you know, how people are going to respond, it, it, it's incredibly gratifying, but um, it doesn't make me any better at what I do. And, and I think you can get caught up in that. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to get better. And, um, and the response is gratifying. Uh, no question. I mean, you can't, like I said, if you're human, you, you, you want to be respected for what you do. You want people to like what you do, or at least to respond to it. Um, but in the end, I think it, it can be a real trap, especially for writers, because because the work is necessarily solitary. It's not a social it's not a social act to sit in front of your computer and write, and yet that's where the work gets done. But because you know most of us are social creatures, um, there's, it, it's very attractive to to see your name on Twitter, to respond to that, and uh, you know hope that there's a sense of community about it. But in the end, um, it's getting in between you making a phone call or, or, or doing the job uh, that's at hand. And and I think a little, a little of it goes a long way. Yeah, no, I totally get that too because, you know, there's just for, for us on our Twitter, there's the positive of when, you know, this year when we were included in Sports Illustrated's top podcast of 2014, a lot of people reached out to say congratulations and, and that felt really good. But, there's also times like recently where I got a tweet from someone who's complaining that two years ago in an interview that I did with um, Jack McCollum, I mistakenly called uh, James uh, James Harden Joe Hayden one time in the interview. Uh, right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's crushing to hear that you made that mistake two years ago. But it's it also, as, as much as it feels good that someone is digging into the archives to listen to that interview from two years ago, it's like, oh man, I wish they could have used that time to maybe say one thing they liked about it because you just you find yourself just focusing on what you might have done wrong. And I do things wrong every week. I mean, I'm not I'm not perfect, and I don't have a chance to. I mean, I guess I could edit things, but I don't. I just put out what we did. I don't go back and and take out mistakes or anything like that. But right. um, I mean, I guess I guess what I'm saying is the response is always less important than the work. You, you know, yeah. and obviously the response tells you a little bit about how 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 good or bad the work is. But you know, in the end, um, you know, it's uh, it can get in the way. It can get in the way of the work. That's all. After writing this piece about Elway, um, what was Sunday like for you watching the game? Was it did when you after you write a piece like this uh, during that next game? Does it does it change the experience watching it? Did, is there do you come from a a different place than you might have if you had not done this piece? Yeah, that's a good story. That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I mean, anytime I do a, a piece on a subject, I think I'm, pro- I'm, I'm probably not alone in this. I sort of uh, claim ownership of it, if for no other reason than I, that I've, I've dug so deeply in the reporting that I now know about the subject, uh, at least on a superficial level, as, as well as I think anyone for at least you know the period of time that I was digging into it. And as a result, I completely care about it at that point. Once you do so much work into reporting something, you, you, you know, it, it, it becomes, the more you know, the less it's a job, and the more you just, you're, you're interested. Um, if, if you're any kind of, you know, <laughs> human being, the more you know, you're going to care more. And so, so there's no question that 
Um, I'm going to do a piece on Mississippi Mississippi State, so I cared about the egg bowl a lot more than if I hadn't reported on it. And, um, you, you know, I I, um, I uh, did a piece on Max Lennox, who is, is captain of the Army basketball team, and, and um, suddenly I was I was checking every every time they played, you know, what the score of the game was and how they were doing. Um, and it's the same with, with the Elway story, of course. There's no question that that I'm I'm now sort of invested. I'm not necessarily cheering. I'm cheering for my story. You know, it's like I'm, I'm I want to see what happens next. And because I have sort of a front row seat, I've just spoken to the principal. Uh, I'm definitely far more interested in and and strapped in and watching than I than I would be if I hadn't done that story. Well, having been the person who did that story, did you find yourself? when the news came out that, that John Fox and the assistants had been let go, there seemed to be a real surprise on Twitter about it. But did, after reading it, I was thinking, you know what, I bet Mr. Price isn't surprised. Because there's a lot in that story when you read it and then you see what happened after the loss that kind of makes that less shocking. Well, you know, there was a, there was a quote in my story that, that got cut out uh, that I actually tweeted out the other day. Yeah. So there, there's, there's, there's a positive use for Twitter, in which Elway told me, you know, it doesn't really matter. He said, he said, he said, he, he just, he, he said to him, there's always something to be done. He said, he, 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 there's always a move to make. He said, it may be the wrong move, but as long as you're being aggressive. And then he said, because nothing will fix itself. Like, he, and that's how Elway plays. And, and I think that's exactly how he is as a GM. He likes to go long. He likes to take risks, and he and he likes to do something. He's not a stand pat guy. So, in the sense that, uh, in that sense of how I got to know Elway, no, it wasn't a surprise that that Fox um, uh, that they parted ways because, I mean, after the Super Bowl last year, obviously it was a devastating loss in the sense of of the final score. But in every way, you could think. Uh, you know, John Elway could have thought, you know, we, we should stand pat. We're on the right track. We've made all the moves, you know, just in one bad day. And instead he, he went out and got, um, you know, went, went in, you know, went, went full throttle into the free agency and, and, and picked up four or five incredible players. And so, so no, I, I, I wasn't surprised at all by what happened, um, knowing what I know about Elway. You know, I was thinking about that game a little bit, and obviously – I was thinking about the Broncos and the team and the way they're put together, and they reminded me a little bit about the Saints, or, uh, like the Saints, uh, who didn't have a successful year of them, but also really went sort of all in, in a sense, trying to maximize what they had on the field during the final years of Breeze's career, which I think is maybe why L.A. invested so much in the defense in the offseason, to try to maximize the talent on the field uh, when he had has Peyton Manning out there as well. And this is just me trying to make a parallel in my head. But uh, when I was thinking that way, I was thinking, wow, I wonder if maybe it's backfired a little bit in the sense that either Manning ran out of gas this year or he was just playing injured or whatever. But the one thing you noticed on Sunday was Manning just didn't have it. And man, the defense couldn't pick him up. No one ever seemed to put a put a hand on, on Andrew Luck. Not Von Miller or DeMarcus Ware, the one of the four guys you mentioned. So I don't know what you thought about the idea of maybe them going all in this year and, and now having to de- to decide where to go from here. Well, I don't know what you I don't know what you would do otherwise. I mean, in the sense of, I think 
I, I think it was a, a logical, it's a logical move, especially if you're John Elway, who, who felt that that's exactly how his career was redeemed at the end of his own playing career. Right. When, when, you know, they rounded out, uh, the Broncos roster in a way that, that, that wasn't defensively, um, uh, and with a running game early in his career. So, so, I mean, you've got to go in with, if I, on paper, you've got to go all in with Peyton Manning because he's, he, he, you know, quote unquote, you know, certainly that one of, if not the greatest regular season quarterbacks of all time. Uh, and, and so basically, and, and they're coming off a great season offensively. Um, it made perfect sense, I, I, I think, to do what he did. Um, you know, what's, it's now going to become much more interesting. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, in some ways that was, I don't want to say paint by numbers, but, but it was it was a very logical step for somebody who who had always mindset to do what he did in the offseason last year. This year is going to be a, a lot more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And in that quote that you shared on Twitter with there's always something to be done, that's almost an understatement for him this year. I mean, he's got to hire a coach. Coaching The coach is going to have to hire a coaching staff. There's decisions to be made on both of the Thomases. And, of course, we have to find out what Peyton Manning decides or what LA decide what those two decide about what Peyton Manning can bring at a nineteen million dollar price tag next year. But I was thinking when I was reading this story, like, I wonder what John Elway, the executive, is gonna be like when he doesn't have a quarterback like Peyton Manning on the field. Because I think these first few years, uh having Manning there is it's kind of been like, you know, well, he had a a guy that he really views as a peer. And I wonder, you know, a guy who's as great as him, and I just wonder how replacing him might be more challenging for a guy like John Elway. If if patience is going to be a little bit uh, harder to come by, and it's really hard to come by in this league anyway. Uh, we've watched the Bills struggle since uh, since Jim Kelly retired here in Buffalo to find anyone to fill that since 1995 or whatever. And I wonder if you got any sense or thought about that, like what that job is going to be like for him when he doesn't have a guy like Peyton Manning there. Well, not only, not only that. I mean, he certainly looked at him as a as a peer. Uh, although I suspect, deep in his heart, LA, you know, <laughs> thinks he's a better quarterback than anybody. So I don't know oh, if yeah. he thought of Peyton as a peer, but yeah, on paper, absolutely a peer. Um, the other thing was that is that people wanted to come play with Peyton Manning. I mean, he, he was, he, you know, you, that first domino was really important because basically you have Manning there and a lot of players. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of players had players had great appreciation for Manning's skill. I mean, you know, I mean, I know the media harped constantly on, and I include myself in that, on his, you know, his losing record or his, or his not so great record in, in the playoffs, and obviously only one Super Bowl. But but other players, offensively and defensively, I can't tell you how often they raved about. I've heard them rave over the years about just Peyton Manning's mind and, and, and skill. So, so he was a real magnet for free agents to come play with. I mean, and so that's going to, you know, change the equation for LA as well. And so, um, you know, it is going to be a far more complicated, um, picture for, for John. But I, but I will say this. Um, the interesting thing I found about him is, 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 you know, he's a coach's son. And that's sort of, even though everyone knows that about, Elway. What I mean is, everyone knew that Jack Elway, his dad, was a, a, a football coach. But what I mean is, 
when we say someone's a coach's son, that it usually means they're you know incredibly savvy about the game. This is the the cliche idea of a coach's son. You know, good free throw shooter. Uh, you know, you know, uh, is, is a general on the floor. Maybe not as skilled as as other players. Maybe not as talented. But Elway happened to be so talented and so phenomenal, had such a phenomenal arm and feet and everything else that I, I think that was a little bit. Uh, forgotten that he grew up in a house where with, with a man who was constantly thinking about the totality of a football operation at all times. It was in the air. It was, it was the conversation at dinner. It was the conversation after dinner. And, and, and John was in those conversations with his father. And, and, and his dad was not only thinking about, you know, reads and, 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 you know, arm strength and stuff like that. He was, he was thinking about the totality of, of the lines and the defense, special teams. And so, so John has been training to be a general manager in some ways his entire his entire life. And not only that, he loves he loves that. He loves that part of the game. He, and so that to me is a big difference as to why he um, I think he is a successful general manager where a lot of superstars uh, who tried to make that turn were not. You know what I found really interesting about the piece and, and you, you just sort of mentioned it is how you, you talked about the relationship that that uh, John Elway had with his dad. And it was interesting to me because so many times when you hear about a father who, I think there's a line in there in the beginning of the story about how he jokes about picking out his wife uh, who was 5'7 because she'd be perfect for beating athletes or something along those lines. And then, you know, they're, they're always talking about football and, and it was real football, football, football kind of a thing. And sometimes that can be viewed as a real negative. Sometimes kids will react real poorly to that. But it was really interesting um, to to read a story that's sort of the opposite about how that's just totally embraced and how it, it made them best friends as you described them in the piece and I kind of like that for some reason on a personal level to just hear uh, uh, more of a, a happy story along those lines because we hear so many negative ones if you know what I mean. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it helps that there was sort of a division of labor. What I mean is, is you know, Jack was you know an incredible football mind, an innovator. Um, and and John was an incredible talent, so so they both could excel. And you know they played against each other when uh, Jack was at San Jose State and and John was at Stanford, and 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 you know they went two and two against each other. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was it, it was kind of remarkable. What I mean is that they both had their bailiwicks. They both had their places where the other wasn't infringing upon it. It wasn't like John was a limited athlete who thought he was going to be a coach, and so they're necessarily sort of. Uh, competition unstated between the two. Each of them could excel in their own way and carve their own path with each other uh, and, 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 and complement with an E, complement each other um, along the way. So, so it really was a, a, a great partnership um, uh, between the two. And, and like you said, they were best friends. You made a point earlier to, when you were talking about Peyton Manning to refer to him as one of the greatest uh, regular season quarterbacks of all time. And then you also uh, mentioned a few seconds later uh, about how the media perceives his uh, his legacy. Um, do you think if, if we've seen the last of him that um, uh, if, if this is the last of him, if this is Yander, even if he has one more year and um, doesn't win a Super Bowl, let's just say for let's just say that, that, that basically that the resume is complete uh, one way or another. Are you yeah. going to always look at uh, – Look at it with a little bit of an asterisk like that, that the nine one and duns and uh, the Super Bowl loss to the Saints and um, getting Brady getting the best of them for a while there in the career. And is that going to be a big uh, notch against him for you? 
Not for me, because I, I, I think the whole thing is overstated. I mean, I, I think quarterbacks get too much. I mean, you know, this is said all the time, and every quarterback says this all the time. But I think it's true. I think quarterbacks get too much of the credit and, and too much of the blame. I mean, the fact is, Tony Romo had a great year this year, not because he suddenly became, uh, you know, a far better quarterback, but because the line got better in Dallas. And, and you know, the fact is, is that it, it is a totality of, I mean, 22 players. No one wants to hear it, you know, because we all love the quarterback. You know, we all love focusing on the quarterback. But, you know, it's, you know, it's all about, <laughs> it's all about everybody doing the job at once. And, um, you know, I think, I think Peyton Manning is a great quarterback. That the way we decide things, the way the media and even football players decide it, is even when they say this, even when football players say, oh, wow, it's overstated, then we, then we spend the next 20 minutes talking about quarterbacks. So it's just the way the game has now been geared, um, and especially with the rules changes, it's only made it more so. Um, but basically, you know, I think it's overstated, but that's the way it is. And, yeah, he's going to be – he's going to um, – Peyton is going to take a knock against Brady or against Montana because he didn't win as many rings as, as he quote unquote should have. Um, but um, not in my mind. I mean, I, I think he's a great quarterback, and uh, you know, almost any team would have loved to have him in his prime. In fact, any team would have loved to have him in his prime. Who is the greatest quarterback of all time in your mind? I'm just curious. Greatest quarterback of all time in my mind. Uh. I guess I would say Montana, but okay. you know that's colored by the fact that I was out there. I was covering those teams, so I saw them up close. So even that, I, I think, can't be can't be trusted. Um, you know, and 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 you know, greatest passer I ever saw was probably Dan Marino. Then again, I was in Miami at that time, so you know, it's it's uh, it's um, it's a sticky question, and it also yeah. depends on what you what, how you want to define it, and it, you know, it's shape shifting, but. You know, I'll, I'll go with Joe Montana. Why not? Do you think that? I mean, and, and by and by the way, Joe Montana was surrounded by incredible talent. You know, I mean, I mean, Elway. You know, if Elway hadn't won those last two titles, he would have been Peyton Manning, of course. You know, I mean, you right, know, or but, Marino. But 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 for the first you know twelve years of his career, he was he was not surrounded by Joe Montana like talent. You know, Joe Joe Montana had incredible talent surrounding him in San Francisco the whole time, and. Uh, you know, if he didn't have Ronnie Lott and Roger Craig and Jerry Rice, uh, would Joe Montana be Joe Montana? I don't think so. Do you think that Tom Brady's legacy will change at all if he gets a fourth ring this uh, this winter? Uh, I mean, sure, yeah. yeah. I, think it'll, I mean, I think it'll be you know expanded for the for the same reason. I mean, uh, but on the other hand, I don't think if he loses, he's going to be considered you know. A lesser quarterback. It'll fur- further burnish the image. But at this point, he's he's pretty much set in stone. I think as for whatever we whatever we decide his greatness is, um, that 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 resume has also been pretty much set. This would this would be a nice capper, um, and you know. But it's uh, but I don't think it'll change anybody's opinion on Brady at this point. I think everyone acknowledges he's a great quarterback and probably put him in the same category with Montana for the same reason. Yeah, I, I think they all have such unique, you know, resumes in a way too. You know, in a large part, you can talk about uh, Brady really being tied to Belichick and how those guys got the most out of all of those teams. Maybe that's another example of a quarterback who wasn't always necessarily uh, surrounded by 
Randy Moss, who was there in 2007 or whatever, that didn't necessarily have, always have that guy, but you know, did a lot of winning regardless. No matter who was uh, the the guys out there, it seemed like he was. Those guys were able to to be in the playoffs or whatever, you know, far in the in the deep into the playoffs yeah. even. And I, and I don't yeah. think it's any mistake that that you know Montana had a legendary quote unquote genius coach, just like just like Brady does. I mean, right. you know, there's there's that too, and um, you know, it all fits in. It's just it's just it's just a uh, you know a quarterback almost never wins and wins and loses the game by himself. It just just doesn't happen. Yeah, and you know, even as someone who spent his entire life as a Saints fan um, and has watched, you know, every game since 1996, it all changed not just because Breeze came and not just because Peyton came, but because they both came. You know, really. I, I mean, let's let's throw, let me throw it back at you. Is Jim Kelly a great quarterback? Of course he is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, he was great. I, I. It's another you know one guy who I've seen almost every game he played just because of uh, the way you watch games in his career and being here and. You know the thing that I always thought was great about him is he was he he played in the perfect city. I mean, he was basically, you know, he he wasn't born here, but it seemed like it. And even though he didn't want to, he he even went to play in another league to avoid coming here. Since he got here, he's never left. You know, and he he fit perfectly in his what he was great at and how tough he was. And he was like really a blue collar kind of uh, guy, as silly as that is, considering all the skills he did have, but. Yeah, I mean, I wish that kick would have went in for him, you know, and he'd have he'd be one and three instead of zero and four, because uh, I think he'd be regarded a little bit differently if that kick is just a little bit over instead of uh, right. But there's no, there's no difference. He's regarded differently, but the question is whether he's a great quarterback. You know what I mean? Like, well, that if he didn't, I mean, does does winning or not winning a Super Bowl? I mean, obviously, it 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 defines, you know, who we consider a great quarterback. But the but the problem is is that. You know, a lot of times those people either don't get a, a chance to even play in a Super Bowl, or they're not surrounded by enough talent to. I mean, they're only, you know, they're only one end of the one end of the of the string. I mean, you know, you throw the ball, someone's got to catch it. You know, you hand the ball off, someone's got to run with it. I mean, you know, so and and obviously you've got to be protected. And and I'm, I'm just saying that it, there is an overemphasis on the quarterback and and on that one game. Uh, it's unfair, but again, that's that's why they get the big money. That's why they get the attention. I mean, that unfairness. Uh, there's, there's a lot of positives that go along with it, so we all accept it. But you know, it's not it's not boxing. It's not one guy against another. I mean, it's hilarious when they go into a game and it's you know Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning, and how Peyton Manning's done against Tom Brady. Well, he, he never lines up against Tom Brady. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he lines up against the defense. You know, but I mean that's but that's how it's trained. And even those who understand that it's there's something wrong with the framing, everybody falls into doing. I mean, it, it just you know you can talk all day and say, well, he doesn't even line up against Tom Brady, and then for 20 minutes, that same person will say, well, okay, so this is Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady. Why hasn't he done as well? Blah blah blah. I mean, it's just it's a it's a strange construct. Um, but like I said, it's not boxing. It's not tennis. It's not it's not one on one. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and even the, the points you made about when you, when you think about what you were saying about what, about a quarterback and what he needs, you know, Jim Kelly was almost surrounded by Hall of Famers in those positions, a Hall of Fame wide receiver to catch the ball, two of them really, and Lofton and right. Reed, you know, a Hall of Fame running back to run in and Thurman Thomas, and although there was no offensive linemen that are Hall of Famers from that era, if they put groups of offensive lines in, that one probably would have went because the totality right. of them was right. pretty incredible with Kent Hall and, and – uh, 
uh, at, at center kind of anchoring it. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's a well taken point. Um, he's at by SL Price on Twitter, and yes, I am really excited. I get to say that at the end of these interviews now, and uh, we talk mostly about his piece on John Elway, which is in the uh, January twelfth edition of Sports Illustrated. Uh, my copy had a. Uh, an Oregon duck on the cover. I don't know if this was a regional week or not. Um, last thing I want to ask you, and I'll let you go, and it's, it's really switching gears, but as someone who has um, interviewed um, a lot of SI guys over the years and, uh, and, and really followed the magazine through the transition of editors and uh, its transition through uh, into this new world for magazines, I thought 2014 was maybe the best year since I've been following it. Great things happened for the magazine, a new website. Uh, Lee Jenkins broke the biggest story of the year, uh, which was incredible and, and did incredible views on the Internet and also for the magazine, as John Wertheim told me on this podcast. And um, uh, it continues to grow and be a more multimedia platform. And I just wonder, as we enter 2015, as someone who, who works for the magazine, uh, what do you hope to see to happen to build on the momentum from 2014? Uh you know, just more readers. <laughs> more, you <laughs> Still know, all about just getting readers, to read, right? To read our stuff. Um, obviously, uh, we've become more multi-platform, as they say, and and more visual, and, and there's going to be more video and that sort of thing, but the core and the heart of who we are are the stories we tell. And uh, um, I would hope that that, uh, that core is, is, you know, continues to, to thrive and, and um, that people pay attention to it. Um, you know, I mean, SI could claim, I don't know if it's right, because there are other great magazines doing this stuff at the time, but could claim to certainly have, have invented or perfected sports long form. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been lots of sites that have come up and taken advantage of that and, and done well with it, but... Um, you know, that's, we, we certainly have a claim on it, and I would like us to continue to keep doing it. And, you know, would love for people to keep reading all the great writers at SI. I mean, there's, there's an incredible stable of people there, Lee, as you said, and, and you know, others. And, and uh, um, you know, I just I hope that people uh, continue to pay attention. Is there a piece in 2015 you really hope you get the chance to write? Uh, I, I'm just hoping to write keep writing just keep writing <laughs> <laughs> you know i just just wherever they point me i'm i'm happy to go to well uh thank you for so much time and and for becoming a member of the the five-time club if there is such a thing on the show and uh we always appreciate the the conversation and, and people love to have you on so th- thank you very much i really appreciate it no no thank you for for having me on and, and for the great questions all right can't wait for next time okay thank I still have no idea why we play this geeky music before the book club update every week. We really need, in 2015, to make a book club drop like we have for three things. But uh, I want to thank uh, SL Price for being on the podcast today. really appreciate that. A uh, real quick update. In a second here, we're going to interview a guy named uh, Ken Reed, who's the author of Hockey Card Stories, which is a, uh, a book that we have been talking about uh, for the book club uh, since, you know, 
late November and into December and through break, and uh, we're trying to clean all these loose ends up. So the first step of that is going to be Hockey Card Stories by Ken Reed, and we're going to talk to him in a minute. It's a really cool book. Please uh, please check it out. Check Ken out. Uh, and you can hear the interview in a second maybe and decide if you want to do that. Another thing on my plate today that doesn't have anything to do with today's podcast is I'm going to interview the first of two authors of The Death of WCW, the 10th Anniversary Edition, uh, R.D. Reynolds is the guy I'm going to interview today. And then next week, I'm going to interview the other author, Brian Alvarez, and then I'm going to somehow merge those together as part of next week's podcast. Uh, it's kind of just the way that the uh, the publishing company, who's been really nice to us, wanted it done. So we're going to see how it goes. It's not anything we've done before, uh, but we'll see how I do it. I'm not really even sure if I'm going to ask him the same questions and and just play both of their answers, or I don't know. I'll figure that out, but that that's going to be on next week's show, uh, the death of, of WCW, 10th anniversary edition. Uh, so we'll talk about that and, and do some wrestling, which we've done. And then I guess the only other loose end from 2014 is the Al Michaels and John Wertheim book. And uh, like I t- said, uh, I think, to Don uh, as and, and on the show, is that we're just going to keep working uh, with Al Michaels to get that to get that interview scheduled, working with the publisher to get to get Al on here. Uh, as far as I know uh, today, uh, we're going to get a chance to do that. So, all right, uh, let's take a break and come back with uh, Ken Reed. Our next guest lives in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where he is works for Sportsnet, and uh, he's also the author of one of our uh, book club books of the month, Hockey Card Stories. Uh, he's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Ken Reed. What's going on, Ken? Hey, Steve. Thanks, man. Thanks for the tragically hip intro, though. That too. Keep it Canadian, buddy. Way to go. Well, you know, down here in Buffalo, there's one thing I love. Quite a bit. It's Canadian music. I'll tell you that. Canadian rock and roll is something that uh, I found uh, 97.7 at about eight, nine, or ten. And yeah, uh, and I've been uh, if uh, if it wasn't for a hockey tournament for myself or one of my brothers, I've been making the short trek across for some kind of Canadian rock concert for almost 30 years now. So, well, yeah, very nice, very nice. No, you gotta love the hip man. I was just in Kingston, Ontario, their hometown. A couple weeks back for um, hometown hockey that we do uh, at Rogers with City and Sportsnet. So, Kingston, awesome town, and uh, everybody loves the hip. You have to love the hip if you're Canadian. It's 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 part of the whole deal. I wanted to ask you, uh, how much has your job changed uh, this year uh, with mm-hmm. Sportsnet acquiring the rights to the NHL from TSN mm-hmm. in a large degree as compared to what yeah. it was last year? My job, not so much, because I host our highlight show, Sportsnet Central. So for me, it's for me, it's pretty much the same. Uh, I host it with Ivanka Osmak, weeknights at ten. But for me, it's pretty much the same. I think the biggest difference is 
we have a lot better lead in programming, right? It's a lot of nights yeah. coming out of NHL, coming out of NHL in the summer, coming out of Blue Jays, coming out of Blue Jays. So bigger lead in audiences, which is very nice. And uh, the profiles maybe gotten a little bigger because of the bigger lead in audiences, but uh, showing and showed, it's, it's the same work. Uh, for, for us, it hasn't changed, but the shop is a lot busier in general. And, I mean, we have a massive, massive hockey department now. We had a big one to begin with, and now it's astronomically big, so... Yeah, you know, but for me, night in, night out, same game. You know, uh, in the United States, there's always conspiracy theories when ESPN either gains rights or mm-hmm. loses rights to some league, and mm-hmm. what that means for their profile on the station and on SportsCenter. Now, mm-hmm. in Canada, uh, regardless of who has the rights, if you're doing a highlights program, hockey is obviously going to be a huge priority. So I can't exactly yeah. ask you, you know, so did you unbury hockey? Because obviously you wouldn't have had a company if you had buried hockey. But no. um, you did mention that the, the department has increased, the hockey department, and um, has there been a little bit more focus on the NHL product as opposed to, say, a world – did you notice, like, around Christmas time when World Juniors was going on, this year, there was still a little bit of extra focus on the NHL, or maybe some of those um, resources would have been on no, World Junior. I don't. I don't think our focus on the NHL has changed at all. I mean, we were we were hardcore NHL. You have to be in Canada, right? Like you said, right, you're not yeah. hardcore NHL in Canada. Well, you have to give people what they want. People up here want their NHL. So, so no, um, we're hardcore NHL now. We've been hardcore NHL in the past. The, the reason the department has gotten so much bigger is we need more analysts. We need more play-by-play announcers because. We're doing over 500 games a year, this uh, 500 games this year. So we need uh, we need a lot of broadcasters. So not only does Sportsnet have the national contract, but we also have regional broadcast contracts for the Canucks, the Flames, the Oilers, and the, the Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens. So there's a whole lot of hockey all the time. So we need a lot of bodies to do all that work. So no, I'm, we've been hardcore in the past and, and very hardcore this year as well. You know, I'm always trying to explain to people on this podcast and even people like at Christmas uh, how important the World Junior Tournament is in Canada. And uh, mm-hmm. people don't understand, this, understand the scope of it here. I was hoping uh, eyes would open a few years ago when we hosted it. And maybe they did to some degree. And um, with the gold medal on uh, Seth Jones' team and, uh, of course, before that when John Carlson scored the overtime goal. Uh, the profile has raised, of course, and... Um, but five years without a, without a gold medal in Canada and two years without a medal at all. Uh, I talked a little bit a few months ago to Bob McKenzie when he was promoting his book about mm-hmm. what the pressure would be like on this specific team and maybe more Connor McDavid. And I wonder now that the tournament has ended, uh, did you learn anything about Connor McDavid and how he handled that? And, and what about the team in general and handling the, handling the pressure? And they never even uh, were trailed for a second in the tournament. I mean, they couldn't have done any better, obviously. Yeah. I talked to someone from Hockey Canada um, the day of the final, and they said the one thing that they learned about Connor McDavid during the tournament was just how good a leader he was. They were surprised at, at, at the leadership he showed for a 17-year-old in that tournament. I mean, he had an A in his jersey. They all knew he was a fantastic player, but they were all really impressed by the way he conducted himself and the way he took on a leadership role with the team. So I think that's the one thing that uh, that, that I've been told that, that, that Hockey Canada learned about Connor McDavid. Um, and yeah, just in general, the tournament people just nuts for it here. I mean, World Juniors in Canada, there's, I don't think there's anything. I guess the one thing I could compare it to in the U.S. would be March Madness, how everybody in America gets crazy about March Madness, but there's probably not a lot of people in Sweden paying attention to it now 
There's a lot of people in Canada paying attention to March Madness, but I think the closest thing we'd have to March Madness would be the World Juniors because everybody, everybody just gets into it and, and people just go wild about it. I mean, when they have the tournament in overseas, there's there's smaller crowds. When they have it here, it's, it's pretty. It's just packed. It's crazy. And even when they had it in Buffalo a yeah, couple North, years ago, North there Dakota was a lot too. of Canadians coming across the border, as you as I'm sure you're aware. So. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to put into perspective how crazy it is. And put it this way, it'd be like March Madness if everyone was cheering for the same team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I asked you about McDavid, and I'm curious of what did everyone in Canada, specifically mm-hmm. Canada, and maybe even your, maybe you could just answer for yourself, what did you learn about Jack Eichel in this tournament, maybe that you didn't know I, or beforehand? I don't think enough. I think yeah. uh, there's still questions about Jack Eichel after the tournament. I mean, they had that close game with Canada on um, on New Year's Eve, but I don't think we learned enough about Jack Eichel. I think a lot of hockey guys would have liked to see Jack Eichel go the major junior route. I know there was rumors that he might leave BU yeah, and headed to the Quebec League, but uh, that didn't happen. So I think I think people didn't learn enough about Jack Eichel. He's obviously an awesome player, a very elite player, but I think we learned that Connor McDavid is a decent leader as well as an outstanding hockey player, and I think maybe we didn't learn as much about Jack Eichel as we would have liked to from that tournament. I don't want to come off as abrasive here, uh, and I don't mean to be disrespectful in any way. Um, why do people in Canada think that Jack Eichel <laughs> needs Major Junior? I don't know. I, I don't think he does. I think Boston University is an awesome program. Hockey East is, is awesome. The kids are practicing every day. They're playing twice on the weekends. I think college hockey's great. I think some people would just like to see him in major junior, but the other thing is when you're playing NCAA hockey, you're playing against men in some cases. You know, you're playing against guys with 21, 22. The oldest guy you can face in major junior is three mm-hmm. 20-year-olds from each team. So I'm not a big proponent that you have to see Jack Eichel in major junior. I know a lot of people are, but I have no problem at all with him staying at BU. I mean, their program's awesome. I mean, he's going to grow there. He's going to excel there. Jonathan Caves, he didn't have to leave for Tri-Cities in the Western League. He stayed at North Dakota. I mean, there's no magical, for me, there's no magical um, recipe on how to get to the NHL. And college hockey works for some, major junior works for others. I have no problem with Eichel staying at all in, in major junior, or pardon me, in, in U.S. college. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that you can get an edge uh, in major junior at the 16 or 17 year age range, but mm-hmm. with the advancement of the development program in Ann Arbor, and with that team playing in the USHL, uh, mm-hmm. which is, again, another opportunity for a 16- and 17-year-old to play at the highest level in the country and to play against older players, as you mentioned, and then to be able mm-hmm. to go to an NCAA program. And, you know, Eichel is playing against kids as old as a 1987 birth year, I believe, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it's something that uh, we talk about a lot on this show. And actually, uh, John Hayden, uh, who played for the U.S. team, is going to be on this show as well today. Uh, and we'll mm-hmm. talk to John a little bit about his specific path being a third rounder for the Blackhawks and his experience in the World Juniors. But um, I want to ask you, uh, I could talk all day about that and uh, it would get us um, get us down a path off the rails, as they say. But oh, you can go off the rails. <laughs> but I do want to, uh, I'm going to tell you the backstory real quick. I, I reached out to ECW Press to ask them mm-hmm. about the death of WCW uh, book, okay. uh, which we were interested maybe in profiling. And uh, they mentioned uh, this Hockey Card Stories book. 
And uh, would we be interested in looking at that as well? And all I really needed to see is the cover because I got to tell you that you have the most inviting book cover we featured the top two book covers you're in it now the other one was i don't know if you've seen the cover of roy mcgregor's book that he had out a couple years ago it's like a a wide shot of wayne gretzky kind of skating on a pond with a toucan yes yes okay so those are those are our top two covers uh since we featured in the last three and a half or so years of uh the book club love the cover and was really excited to first of all talk to a new hockey guest we love talking hockey on the show and Love talking to guys who who do it in in the best country uh, to watch and and play it in Canada. I'll even admit that. Um, so we're excited to uh, to make a new connection and, and to take a look at the book. And when I got the book and I started looking at it, I said, you know what I got to ask him is there's a real kind of chicken or the egg kind of thing going on with this book that that okay. I was wondering. You know, was it the the stories that came first or the cards that came first? All like, the cards. The cards. Right. Yeah. Okay, tell me a little I bit mean, about putting, put, picking the 59 cards out. Um, yeah, the cards. I mean, I collected cards uh, since probably I was five years old. I got hardcore into it. You know, I was a dealer as a kid. I was 14, 15 years old during the big boom time when everybody had hockey cards. So by the time that came around, I'd already been collecting. So I set up as a dealer and I'd sell cards at shows in Halifax back in Nova Scotia. And then I'd take the money and I'd make and sell them and buy more. So years went on, I'd look at these cards, and there's certain cards I have, and I'm like, what is up with that card? You know, what's going on with that card? And why is that guy fighting? Who's that guy fighting on that card? And what's up with that mustache? And so then I came up with, you know, the idea, well, why don't I talk to the guys on the cards instead of my opinion on it? And, you know, I can filter a bit of my opinion, but I want to get the real story, so you know, it's the old picture's worth a thousand words saying, and so I looked through a bunch of cards that I had, and I said, okay, I want to this one, this one, this one. Of course, there's ones I looked at that I didn't do and ones that I had to look a little further. And, uh, yeah, so you had a card. There's a card of uh, a guy, Phil Roberto, who's fighting a guy in this card from 73, 74. So I always wanted to know what was going on in that card, going back to when I was a kid. I had it on his wall. So I called Phil Roberto up and got the deal. And, and we talked to guys, you know, he has straight hair. Why does he have a card in 1978? You know, <laughs> you'd call a guy up and he'd like, oh, yeah, I got that haircut done in San Diego. And, we started to come together, so well, got a book out of it. And to me, it was just—it's kind of like if someone asked you about your old high school, what was going on in that, and they could tell you about it. And it was very much the same. Cause, okay, what's going on in this car of you from 1981? And give me the story. I mean, so then the, the stories just started flowing. And and total props to the guys who I interviewed—they're so kind and. I mean, it's kind of a humorous book, right? I mean, you're looking back at old photos and all the guys approach it with a great sense of humor. And you mentioned the book cover, so big thanks to everybody at ECW. That was that was all the designers. I had no part in coming up with that cover. And, and when they showed it to me, I was, I was quite wowed. And then when I touched it, I was even more impressed because it feels like an old hockey card pack. So I was totally thrilled with that. So to answer the question, the cards came first and the stories came later. Yeah, and it is a beautiful cover. I hope everyone gets a chance to hold it, like you said, too, because it does have a great mm-hmm. great feel to it. Um, you know, I, I went to journalism school here in, in the United States, and one thing they always mm-hmm. preached to us, which I was never a big fan of anyway, was you have to know your audience. And I wonder if it was difficult at all or if it's something you considered about what your audience would be. And, and I ask you that because it's interesting to see uh, how you kind of kept the cards 
you know, the latest card it featured is like a 1990 card, and that's a rarity. Most of the cards are in the 70s and 80s. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that was uh, more to keep it as a personal story, the cards that you collected, or if it was about an audience thing, or mm-hmm. if there was just less interesting stories in the later, newer cards, or what it was. No, for me, it was it was going over cards that I collected or come across uh, as a kid and as a teenager and even in my 20s and 30s. So for me, I, I I like those cards. I don't I don't collect the new stuff, right? It doesn't do anything for me. So for me, I, I came up with this book idea, and I kind of will, any, will anyone really like this? You know, I talked to my lit agent. He thought it's a great idea. So for me, my audience was basically just guys and girls my age, maybe a little older, who collected cards. And I knew there was a lot of people out there who did it because. I mean, it was a rite of passage in circa 1988. You had to collect hockey cards. And I know everybody in Canada ripped open the hockey cards as a kid. So for me, it was my audience was going to be people, you know, probably 30 years old, 35 and up, who remember ripping open packs and remember going down to a corner store and just open a pack and not, not collecting cards because you thought you were going to be rich, but just collecting them because that's what kids did. So it turns out there's actually an audience out there that could relate. And, and it's a good question because I was actually wondering if there would be an audience for this type of book. Because it's kind of a niche book, right? I mean, yeah. it's not just a typical hockey book. It's a little different. But it turns out there was an audience for it. And, you know, I knew the hardcore hockey collector would buy it. Hockey card collector would buy it. But I wanted the guy that maybe didn't see his cards in 20 years to buy it. Or his mother threw his cards out. I wanted him to buy it. Not necessarily the hardcore collector, because I knew there was probably a lot of guys who go to hockey card shows that would buy it. But I wanted the guy that maybe had a box of cards as a kid and hadn't looked at it in 30 years to buy it as well. As soon as mine came, I'm going to be honest, I went to Amazon and I bought another one to give to my dad for Christmas. Because, well, you know, it just it just reminded me of, like, uh, and he loves it, you know what I mean? Like, he, he sat well, at Christmas dinner and annoyed everyone because he had his head, you know, flipping through and looking <laughs> at it or whatever because that's exactly what it was. For him, it was a trip yeah. down, uh, you know, looking at the cards that he collected as a kid. I got to tell you, totally, one, yeah. one thing that I was really excited is when I was looking at the uh, the index and who was, in, who was in here, and I seen Brian Bellows. I was like, okay. oh, I got to look at that one. I wonder if he picked that one because Brian Bellows is the same birthday as me. Cause I used to oh, always really? Look, okay. You know, That's I used not to, why I picked it. Though. No, no, it wasn't. When I read it, it, it didn't turn out to be the reason. Because I, I no. just used to look at the back of my hockey cards to see if any hockey players had the same birthday as me. And Brian Bellows okay. was the only guy who it ever turned out to be true for. And then I was devastated like around age 20 when the video started going around of him getting heckled by uh, – by the Trot- penguins, <laughs> by Chachi and the penguins, and I was yeah, like, "Oh no!" Yeah. I, I, I didn't go to North Bellows. I didn't come into our conversation. No, you didn't, you didn't bring that up to him. You didn't ask him about no. uh, that's no, uh, that's, that's something. That he, yeah, if you if you want to Google something, that would be that be something to look up. That's a, it's worthy. It's worthy of Google. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. What do they say? Not safe for work, though, right? No, not safe for work. Yeah, it, it, you know what? If you want to know what goes on with the ice, <laughs> yeah, that's a video you might want to check. Out. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, so, since you've been out promoting it and uh, it's had a chance to be out there, have you been happy with uh, with the um, with the reception? And and did you, have you thought about hockey cards too in a, in a new batch? Something like because this is a book that really could lend itself to be like a franchise if if the interest was there and if you were interested yeah. in doing more. Yeah, it could actually, and I've had a lot of people ask me that. Um, to answer your first question, as far as the reception of the book goes, I've been very impressed. It's into its third printing now. I don't really know what that means, but people tell me it's good because I'm not. People say, "Oh, you're an author." I'm like, "Not really. I'm just a dude who wrote a book." <laughs> so it's into its third printing, whatever that means. I guess that means it's sold. 
um, it's, it's, yeah, it's done really well. I'm very happy with it. And people ask me a lot of, oh, is there going to be a second one? And I think there will be. Uh, it's just a matter of finding time to do it. I've got two young boys now. When I started this project, I didn't have kids, and I didn't, and I only worked three days a week, so there was a lot of time to do it. I was anchoring weekends then. Now, now I'm anchoring weeknights. I got two young fellas, but um, I, I would love to do another one, and I think I probably will. And um, yeah, I've been very happy with with how people have read uh, the book, and people seem to be really nice about it. I've yet to have anyone come up to me and tell me your book sucks, which is always nice. Um, you know, from people tell me they've they've really enjoyed it. And, that's, and you, you mentioned about your dad, and, and it was kind of a trip down memory lane for him. And that's really all I wanted this book to be. I mean, I just wanted it to be something that people could hold. Um, they didn't have to read it all at once. They could kind of go from one, one story to the next. But just something that they'd enjoy and just take them back, just distract them for a few moments and kind of make them smile. So I think I think the book's accomplished that. And I would probably, uh, I'd love to do another one. I, I, I got, well, I got 40,000 cards upstairs, so there's no shortage of material. And, and I have looked through a bunch of other cards that, uh, that I would love to, to include in the book. And the one request I get from people is, can you do more cards for the, from the boom years, you know, kind of right. 88 to 93. So I think if I did do another book, it would have a large amount of cards in that area. Right yeah, if I if I were, were ever to request one, I, I would want to know more about the the Pavel Bure card where he has the rollerblades on. Bloodlines with his brother Val. Yeah. Hey, man, don't Steve, don't worry. I have that one on the side. <laughs> that, that will be that is on. Dude, if I do a second book, that I'm going to try my best to get an interview with either Pavel or Val and put it in there because I have a pile of about sixty cards, and that is one of the ones in there. Imagine that. Uh, yeah, I love the Bloodlines. Ninety ninety one update is I think that was in yeah. etc. But I have to pick all this. I was a, just a huge Pavel Bure fan, so I, I have you know 150 different Bure cards or whatever that, but um, and that's always been an interesting one to me. The book is called Hockey Card Stories, uh, True Tales from 59 of Your Favorite Players. And if you buy this in the United States and it comes, they didn't spell favorite wrong on the cover. That's just how they spell it up there. That's Canadian way. Exactly. <laughs> uh, his name is Ken Reed, the author. You can find him on Twitter. He's at S N Ken Reed, uh, R E I D. And uh, it was very kind of you to come on and let us have uh, a part in promoting the book. We really appreciate that. And uh, thanks for talking uh, hockey and, and, and about the book with us. really appreciate that. Well, they don't let crazy people vote. They take that right away from you when you're committed. We are also immune to fear. We can't hook up emotionally to the concept of cerebral damage. I'm getting tired of this rap, Murdoch. You're tired of it. How do you think I feel? I have to listen to it all day. All right, I want to thank Ken Reed for making his first uh, stop on the podcast today, and just want to let you know what we got. It is uh, Wednesday afternoon, and a lot of uh, the non-interview stuff of this podcast, as we said earlier, was recorded on Tuesday before we knew exactly what the show was going to be, which ultimately is S.L. Price at the top, Ken Reed in the middle, and my good friend John Hayden uh, here at the end, but uh, what we got is a long interview with John, and uh, I'm excited about it. And uh, it's not going to be for everyone. I'll say that right now. It's over 50 minutes long, and it's about a hockey career. And uh, 
maybe this is one of those that when John is killing it with the Blackhawks in, in two or three years that everyone's going to want to come back and listen to and learn more about John. But um, there's a lot of stuff there about USA hockey, uh, growing up in the United States and Connecticut, what where that takes you as a player, and of course the World Junior Tournament. So I'm excited to have John on. And uh, if it's not for you and you really want to hear Don and I's picks uh, for the for the um, championship games, you can skip ahead or you can uh, you can just stop now. But I'd encourage you to, to check John out. And uh, it's going to be uh, it's really exciting. And they even got to make him squirm a little bit at the end. So I'm excited about that. But uh, we're going to take a break and uh, come back with John Hayden. Get to the cross for DeLeo. Back to Carlo. And Matthews back with it, back in front. Here's Hayden with a chance, scores! John Hayden from a sharp Our next guest is from Greenwich, Connecticut and has represented the United States in the under-17, under-18, and under-20 tournaments. He's also a sophomore forward at Yale University and a Chicago Blackhawks podcast. We're really happy to have him on the show for the first time. A warm sportscaster's welcome to John Hayden. What's up, Hayden? How you doing, bud? Hey, hi. Good. How are you? Doing thanks really good. No, thanks for, thanks for coming on. I was just talking to you before we got started, and we missed each other this weekend. But before we get going too far, i got to make sure... You didn't have too much coconut water, did you? Because I don't want any. I don't want you to get sick or anything during that. <laughs> um, man, I miss you too, but I get that trip all the time. <laughs> you get jerked um, about the coconut water a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I had uh, just right amount, so all, all good here. All right, good. Uh, I mentioned um, you're from Greenwich, so uh, what was it like? Uh, so growing up uh, playing hockey in in Connecticut, what's the uh, what's it like there? Like. So you're always on the top team, I imagine, being one of the top players, I'm sure, at your age. What was it like growing up playing right from the beginning, like the AAA stuff uh, in that um, in, in Connecticut? What's it like? I have no idea. Yeah, so I had a pretty interesting uh, route growing up. Um, and in Connecticut, my first team was, was actually a Greenwich Skating Club team, um, and that's an outdoor rink right in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, and that was obviously a great experience being outdoor, um, playing with my best friends. Greenwich was a lot of fun. Um, and from there, I moved to play for two travel teams, uh, Mid-Fairfield, which is in Connecticut, and then the Westchester Express, which is in New York. Um, so I played on those teams. Um, my 95 Westchester Express team had Stephen Santini, Anthony D'Angelo, um, and other um, players who actually have ended up playing uh, pretty high levels, obviously. Um, and then I played two years at Brunswick, uh, Right, uh, yeah, a day pro- school in, in, in Greenwich, and from there I went to Ann Arbor. Now I saw some picture of you wearing a honey bake jersey. Did you do that as like a summer tournament, or? Yeah, no, I did that for tournaments, and then for um, yeah. my seventh grade year, I was playing. For, I was there in Michigan, playing for them for a little bit because it was it was the Quebec year. Um, okay, so we, that was the, the year of the Quebec tournament. Right, Pee-wee Major. Yeah, year. we actually yeah. went on to win that tournament, which was pretty awesome. Oh, that that is sick. What? So that tournament's a world famous hockey tournament, you know. So what going down there, was that was that really the first time where you were like, Wow, this is a big, big thing as a hockey player to do? Was that like the was that like almost Yeah, like, that was like that was the first stage where I, I was pretty pretty amazed with like, you know, like 
how like the whole hockey process works. And that was that was that was probably my first exposure to a, a somewhat of a, a big deal tournament. Now the the thing that always gets crazy in youth hockey is the major years because those are the state years. So did you get on any? Did you ever play on you know one of these? I wanted to call you a trophy chaser, but and everyone's done it. My brother's done. Everyone's done it. Did you get on a team in one of those major years where you guys were put together to try to make a run at a state title and then ultimately a spot in nationals? Or yeah, that that Westchester Express team um, that I mentioned and the Honeybake team both were. I had second place in nationals with Honeybake, and then with Westchester, I lost in the finals or in the semifinals of, of nationals. So. Um, Couple of good runs at, at nationals. I, I I never got uh, a national title though. Two state titles though isn't bad. Yeah. Did you ever talk to Anthony about his state tournament history? A little bit, but yeah. I know I know he's got I know he's got a lot going on. Yeah, three state final losses by one, two, three, four goals total. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was three losses. No, yeah, three. Uh, so what? Crazy though. So what was it? Uh, squirts, bantams, and midgets. Three. Uh, Three state final losses. So I, I'm, I, I'm probably not going to bring it up to him. <laughs> no, I, def- I definitely would. Uh, the, he will, the one a really interesting thing, two interesting things about that. One was uh, the Peewee year they lost to Rochester in double overtime, and the kid who scored the game-winning goal in double overtime was one nothing, one nothing game. So the kid who scored the game-winning goal is maybe you heard about him in the news. He actually killed his girlfriend who was a Brockport student and like it's this crazy murder case and he's in prison for what? life for murder you hear about this kid I have not no well so that's bad news so that so that kid beat Anthony so a murderer so he got beat by a murderer as a peewee and then in his his midgets you know it's basically his last his last game in in Buffalo before you know going to the USHL and I always say it's the best game he ever played he says the uh the North Dakota game in the in the tournament, but he they lost five to four, and he had two goals and two assists, and um, had a breakaway at four four and got stopped, um, and they, you know ultimately they lost five four. But that was a really exciting game. But yeah, no nothing there for that. So you can definitely get on him about that. But uh, moving back to you, so when did you start getting noticed? Uh, by the national team, so so it, the way it works is you go to the festival things, right? And then you kind of right. and you kind of progress from there. So take me. Uh, so I know you you start you played on the under seventeen and under eighteen team. So were those the first times that you got to that level when you made the under seventeen team? Was that the first time you got that far in festivals, or had you already been progressing to the national level on the uh, festival um, teams? So I had been going to the those like festivals that you mentioned in up in New York, and then um, I, I'm sure that there's a little bit of scouting and, and whatnot being done there. And then my sophomore year at Brunswick, um, I knew that the 40 camp was a possibility, and I really wanted to go to the 40 camp, which was, um, I think it was in February of my sophomore year at Brunswick. And if I, so that's like the 40 or 50, uh, they're, they're the guys that they want to look at to make that team. Um, and I fortunately got invited to the 40 camp and you know that was I, I guess when I that turned into a, a big goal of mine was to, was to make that team. So uh, I spent so that a lot went, of time prepping for that and getting ready. And then uh, fortunately that went well, and I got offered to play for that team at the end of that forty camp. So now when you were at Brunswick as a freshman and a sophomore, I saw you put up you know huge numbers on those teams. Obviously, 
must have been one of the big players. Now, were you, was it rare for, were you on the top, okay, let's back up. Were you on the top teams, those freshmen and sophomore year at Brunswick? I don't know what the structure is yeah, there, but no, you know. I was, I was at the, on, the, on the top team. And was that rare? The varsity team. Was that a rare thing um, to have a freshman or sophomore at the school playing that high? I think there's three freshmen my year there, and oh, I, wow. yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it was like really common. Um, uh, like maybe a couple, a couple freshman year. I'm not. I'm not positive. Um, I'm not sure about right now how many freshmen are on it, but it was. I don't think it was that absurd. Now, how important do you think it was for you to be able to play on the top team that early? Like, do you think that? Like, do you look back and say, like, thank God I didn't that first year have to waste that year in JV? Or did you no, kind of yeah, go there knowing that you're only going to be a varsity player or you're going somewhere else? Or or what was kind of no, the – yeah. Yeah, I, I knew from talking to the coaches, like, going to Brunswick that I, I'd be on that team. Um, but I'm very thankful I, I played two years at Brunswick because that transition to – from prep school to the USHL, right? Um, it's a big one. Was was tough. Don't get yeah. me wrong. That was a very tough transition my first year, but um, I think it helped having because prep school obviously they're good players and it's good hockey. So I mean, it, it helped playing varsity at Brunswick for two years. Now your sophomore year, when you're going through that season, are you thinking I'm going to be back here as a junior, or are you kind of all along thinking it's going to be US uh, development program or somewhere else in the USHL? Or I got to go somewhere else. I'm outgrowing this. Or what? What were you thinking that sophomore year? Honestly, I I knew um, when I found out I was going to forty camp, that became a goal of mine. And then when I got offered, I sat on it. I didn't accept that offer right away. And I talked to my my parents, my coaches, and just just tried to figure out. And I I didn't. I wasn't really thinking about the future aside from um, you know I I have Brunswick and I have this offer to go to the national program. And at the end of the day, I thought it was the right thing for my hockey career to go to Ann Arbor. Um, and I still think it was the right decision. Um, it was an unbelievable opportunity. So Brunswick was unbelievable for me. Now, when, did, um, when you know, does Yale? Yeah, um, when does Yale come I'm, in? Yeah, I'm happy with the decisions. Yeah, when did Yale come into the picture? So Yale was that before the uh, USA, so that sophomore year. Right, um, I, I knew it was early. Yale that fall. Okay, so I mean, technically, you committed before you can actually commit, right? I mean, technically, like, so like um, you gave a verbal commitment at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I gave a verbal commitment. Right. So why Yale? So, for, for in my opinion, Yale is the best combination of athletics and academics, and obviously, I I think academics are important. I'm here at college, um, not just to be a hockey player, but to be a student as well, um, and obviously a, a big factor was Coach Elaine. Um, he's done an unbelievable job with the program, and he's you know I, I expected him to be an unbelievable coach, and he's you know done even better than my expectations. And um, you know it's just great to have him coach me, Coach Carrera. Obviously, did a great job. Um, so just a combination of everything here. It's close to home which is nice. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm near home, but then again, I, it's just an hour train ride. Um, and just the school in general, I like the atmosphere, uh, socially, athletically, academically, all around, which is a great school. And obviously, you know, from, from Tony, I could just, yeah. everyone here likes it. 
Did you get, ever get serious about other schools? I mean, did, I mean, you committed so young. So, I mean, did you ever get to the point where you, you know, did you go on any official visits besides Yale? No, I didn't even go on any other officials. I knew, I knew pretty early that I wanted to go to Yale. So, it was a pretty right when I got the offer. It was pretty pretty easy for me. I knew that was who I wanted to go to. Well, I want to no ask. Officials. I want to ask you a lot about Yale, but let's. I don't want to jump over the USA program that quickly though either. So, two years okay. in the development program and. You know, it's a chance. This is one of the things that U.S. hockey really can stick their chest out about. I mean, the development program, the development team in Ann Arbor, I mean, that's the that's the envy of the world right now. Like, the way we're developing developing players at, at that age, at that level, um, to be able to put that team together and for them to play together internationally uh, in multiple tournaments. I mean, it's really something that USA Hockey has developed uh, uniquely. And, uh, and I, every year I read about you know, representatives from Hockey Canada or Hockey Sweden or wherever are coming, spending a week there looking at it. Tell me about your experience and the development program and, and what you think about it makes it so special. Well, first of all, they their, their staff is just professional around there. Um, it's, uh, it's really just a, a classy and um, like top-notch system they run there. Um, so, you know, my experience there was, Two years, I had great billets, which helped a lot. Um, there's a lot of training. You know, it's a it's a development program, so their their goal is to make you a better person, a better hockey player, and they definitely did that for me. Um, the first year is tough, obviously the transition. Um, you know, everyone's everyone's in the same boat, which makes it easier. All the players are are leaving home. Um, I made great relationships with a lot of guys. Um, so yeah, the first year is great. You play in the USHL, and the second year. You get to play college too, which is awesome. The playing college games before you you're actually in college um, is definitely an advantage and, and a key step in development. Um, and then obviously those are just those are two important years of hockey. Uh, your junior and senior year in high school um, that'll be it. My natural junior and senior year of high school. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, playing international was awesome. You know, getting just we wear that jersey every day, that USA jersey. And, uh, you know, everyone says that's special. So I'm, I'm sure you hear that a lot. What was kind of your? What's the perception of the average development player program when you're when you're getting ready to go there? Do you look at it like I'm getting ready to go play in the USHL? Do you look at it like I'm getting ready to represent the United States? Do you look at it like what? What is What's the perception like? Because it's really easy when you when you go to to Minnesota, like Anthony did, and you, you train first, you try out for Sioux Falls, and you sign with them, and you say next year I'm going to the USHL to play Sioux, you know, play play for Sioux Falls. How do you explain it to people? Like, what's the perception of what you're doing in hockey? Like, how does that work when you're talking to an aunt or an uncle or or someone? Like, what yeah. what do you explain to them? Like, where are you going with hockey when you make that commitment? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's. Um... It's, it's obviously hard to explain that to people outside of hockey, as you know. Um, and I, I guess it is a form of genius, which is hard to explain too. But you know, for me, it was uh, I like to just describe it as you know playing for for, for my country. Uh, I think that was one of the most appealing things for me going there. The fact that I was playing for USA, representing USA, um, and and then from a, a purely competition standpoint, yeah, I mean. Um, I, I thought about just the USHL, but you know the international was probably like, the most intriguing thing to me. I, you know, playing those international tournaments probably three a year was awesome. Um, and then the college thing was more 
more of the second year when I started thinking about that. Um, and, right. that and that was really exciting because we went to, you know, Yost um, and, and all these other, and, and, and we went to Michigan State and, and, you know, playing all these colleges was an awesome experience. Now, that first year when you're playing on the under-17 team and you're going to the different USHL games, you're almost an underdog in every one of those games, which is a really rare situation for the group of kids that are there. I mean, if you're making the development team, you're a kid who's been a star everywhere. Is there is there a little bit of a humbling aspect to that that is that really turns out to improve you as a hockey player? Because, I mean, I I think every time that every USHL hockey game I watch with the under-17 team, I see in 7-1, 7-2, then there's this one night where it's like, well, wow, it's 2-2 two to two, or it's 3-2 to two, or wow, they won the game. Like, is there, is there sort of a humbling experience that just helps you build through that whole year uh, playing against, uh, you know, obviously some much older kids in the USHL? Yeah, that, uh, that's, that's actually what very well said. Um, my first year was, was humbling. It was, uh, you know, kind of eye-opening. I didn't feel really that comfortable in the USHL my under-17 year. And I think that's actually normal, though. Um, uh, from talking to guys on my team, you know, we just had to work together, battle through, and, you know, this whole time we're lifting and, and doing cross-training and whatnot, um, um, just training to get to get better. And it's actually unbelievable how I felt uh, a year later. It was just an immense difference um, in how I felt in my game, my team's game, and the competition overall. But, yeah, like, back to the 17-year, that was that was very tough at times. Um, and I guess it was just, you know, I kind of learned just, you know, there's ups and downs, and I mean, if we had downs as a team or individually that that year from just struggling from uh, the adjustment, you know, you got to put your head down and work. So I, I do think like it, it was humbling, like you said, and it actually taught me a lot and helped me uh, overall as a hockey player. Does anything stick out from that 17 year um, as far as like the maybe the first win against USHL team or or something personal like your first goal? Does anything stick out where? you feel like you're, you know, it's a humbling experience, but then you finally see the other side where like, okay, I see why they're putting us in this position because I can have this success at, at this age. Is there a moment that sticks out that kind of follows along with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was like our first game or one of our first games, we actually beat Youngstown really bad. We maybe put up close to 10 and like that. And, and I, obviously the whole, the whole year wasn't like that. Uh, there were ups and downs, but, you know that was that was awesome. Just right away uh, having having a big win early, um, and then we had we made playoffs that year. We had, we lost to Dubuque in the first round. We got swept, but making playoffs was a bit of an accomplishment. Just because you know we played a lot of the games. Eighteen helped us out. Playing with getting some wins, uh, but that was that was cool to make playoffs. Did you guys play all your team play all the playoff games, or did eighteens play some of them as well? No, we did because I, I think they were either getting ready to go to Worlds or, or maybe at the UA teams. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure, but they we we had the, the playoffs and it was tough, but it was good to get to make it there. Do you remember like playing the first time you played in Lincoln? I mean, everyone says that's the best place to play. In. I do. Yeah, yeah. As cool as as cool as the build up. I mean. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It's loud. Um, they were a pretty, pretty big team. Um, we went there and we got a win. I played there my 18 year, uh, so my second year. But no, that was that might be my favorite barn in the USHL just because it's loud right. and, and they're packing in. Yeah, everyone loves that. So 
a big topic on this show, believe it or not. And we talked to, you know, Bob McKenzie about it. We've talked to, I don't know, every hockey guy we get in, we get into this discussion about should you go to the CHL, you know, major junior route versus the route that's available here for United States players. And I often will argue the U.S. side. The I can make an argument for a first-round guy like a Jack Eichel, why it makes sense for him to do what he, he's done, and I'm so glad he's done it the way he's done because he's made my argument look really great. Uh, you could make the argument for a late first-round guy, uh, a mid-round guy, a second- or third-round guy like yourself, uh, and even for a late-round guy. So I, I, would, uh, I would always say that I could talk any – I could say – I could make a great case uh, for any prospect at any level uh, to stay, especially a United States kid, to stay and go the USHL and college route. Um, why was it the best route for you, and did you ever – even for a second, uh, consider the CHL or, or what that might offer. Uh, why why was it the best for John Hayden, and, and what about that other option, and did you consider it at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said before, college is definitely the right route for me. Okay. I think um, just just a, a few of the things that appeal me about college are, you know, you're, you're going there and there, you have four years to play college hockey, um, which is great for development. Um, those Those the time you're in college hockey, you're playing against older players, or at least I am. And, you know, last year there, I was born in 95. Last year there were 89s in college hockey. So that's six years. So that's guys who are a, a decent amount older than me. Um, so I'm get, I'm playing against that level of experience. I'm getting that exposure. And, you know, college hockey has great players. You know, you see the statistics in the NHL now. Guys are making it. You know, my linemate last year, Kenny Axino, went right from Yale to the NHL, which is unbelievable to see. Um, you know, he's obviously one of my role models. Um, and, and the two other seniors, uh, Ruder and, and Younger went on to play pro too. So, right, you know, you know, just, yeah. I just, you know, the college route was, was the right idea for me. I thought about, uh, thought about the CHL a little bit. I mean, obviously, like, I, I like to keep my options open. I just like to, to consider everything just to, you know, not rule anything out. Um, and Halifax drafted me uh, in the queue. Um, but you know, I, I never, I never got to the point where it was a close call. I was all, always pretty sold on Yale. Now I want to transition a little bit to Yale and start talking to you about that because I can't keep you all night. But uh, so when you said you didn't do any officials, does that include Yale? You didn't even do an official at Yale. Yeah, it was just I've been to games from going up in the area, and I, and, you know, I talked to the coaches. Like I came in, I met, met the guys. But you know, I think the main reason I didn't do an official is because. I was in I was in Ann Arbor for for a couple of years and it just like never really happened. Um, but again, I knew I was sold on you know um, I didn't even worry about not hiring an official and uh, you know it was definitely the right call for me. What is the perception of Yale in those locker rooms? I mean, when you think of the under eighteen or seventeen team, you think about you think about those are the guys who are going to fill the rosters on the the quote-unquote top programs. You know, they're going to go to BC, they're going to go to BU, they're going to go to Michigan. Uh, you know, maybe they're going to go to Minnesota if, if Minnesota will have them, you know, how that can be. Uh, you know, that. what is the, the general perception about the conference, about Yale, about the Ivy League schools? Is it when, you know, obviously you guys are always, it's such a big decision. I know how hard it can be. Uh, and guys, it's always on your mind. It's something you guys are always talking about. What is the perception of... Uh, 
of uh, of Yale and the Ivies and the ECAC. Yeah, I mean it was it was obviously different. So many guys on my team ended up going to you know the, the Boston schools or Michigan, Minnesota, mm-hmm. North Dakota, um, and you know it was so it's obviously different and. Not not many guys on my team went to went to ECAC route, and I think one of the one of the best feelings was I was actually in Russia, and I woke up, I woke up, looked at my phone, saw Yale won the the national title, and I was kind of laughing at breakfast, uh, looking around because you know sometimes uh, the guys give me, gave me a hard time about ECAC, but you know you can't really argue with. The last two winners, and um, I think the ECA season one of the best, if not the best, in college hockey. So you know it was obviously different, um, and you know all those other schools are awesome schools, and they were right for those guys. That you know Yale was right for me, so um, I never, I never looked at it in a different way. I just uh, I knew it was, it was uh, the right school. You're gonna have to help me out a little bit with this. I know that. Uh, Hitchcock was on the under eighteen team. Was he on the under seventeen team when you were on the eighteen team? Yeah, he was. He was. So and, he was there for both years. Um, so and did you guys kind of? Did he ever come to you and say, "Hey, I, I don't know what you know how quickly he made his decision," but did you ever talk to him about Yale? Um, like, like even in, with you making the commitment to go to Yale, do you think that that may have contributed to him making the decision, or am I reading too much into that? No, uh, I, I don't know. I. I don't know how much my decision made, but, you know, I think, um, you know, uh, we'd have to ask him exactly, but I think for a lot of guys uh, committing, um, even just to the ECAC overall, they see the success that it's made. And, you know, Hitz was, I'm pretty sure he was committed um, okay. uh, before the USA, but we definitely talked about it while we were there. We were both really excited. We uh, we both, you know, keep tabs on Yale and talk about it. Um, and, again, like the success Yale's had, um with you know, just developing players, winning titles, uh, you know, uh, whether it be a national or ECAC or Ivy, and you know, just the, the coaching staff in general definitely uh, influenced my decision. And I wouldn't be surprised if all that was, you know, the same reason Hitchcock committed. Now, when you come in as a true freshman, so you're eight, you know, basically an eighteen year old, uh, eighteen year old kid there, and coming in, and uh, I remember, you know, obviously. As we're as we're building up from the national champ, you know, win the national championship, and uh, you know, you know, okay, so Malcolm is gone. We know that there's this Alex Lyon, you know, this goalie front, one of the best goalies in the USHL. He's coming, so it's like, oh, okay, good. All right, so now we know we're losing Andrew. All right, so you know what what's going to happen there? And Lagunier, and you know, some big forwards, and and you're the name. You know, you're the you're the you and and Alex uh, for you know from the from the front of the rink to the back of the rink. You guys are the prize of the class. And then you get, you know, you get drafted, and we'll talk about that in a second. And you come in as a true freshman. Did you feel any amount of pressure? Like, was there this, like, okay, I'm an 18 year old true freshman at in the, my first home game at Ingalls? They're raising a championship banner, and you know, there's this expectation. I'm playing with two thirds of the most dominant line in college hockey from the year before. You know. Um, what what was what, what was the feeling of that? Was there was there any pressure? Did you take it in stride? I mean, was it intimidating at all? Um, I mean, I, I don't think there was that much pressure. I just like you said, took it in stride. I knew, I knew there was going to be a bit of a learning curve, um, which which definitely happened. You know, 
I got way more comfortable as the year went on. The first half wasn't, you know, that my best hockey, and um, I just uh, again I don't think there's, there's that much pressure. And you know, one of the important things with, with my adjustment to is the leadership. So you know, the, when I was a freshman, the two older classes helped me a lot. Um, I mentioned the, that senior class; uh, those few guys were huge. And then obviously, you know, guys like Dazer, Weaves, um, Fouls, like all. That class helped a lot too. Just looking at the older guys uh, helped, and you know I think that might be a reason there wasn't much pressure because you know there's a, a bunch of guys who who were who were studs, and you know um, I I learned from and looked up to. Did you ever sit down? Was there ever a point maybe in that first half where you talked to Kai and Kai was like, "Hey, your first half is not all that different from my first half as a true freshman coming in here." Because I don't know if this if this was brought up or if you knew about this, but I don't think he scored a goal, maybe one before Christmas, you know. And then as the year got on, he sort of settled in and obviously contributed more as uh, than a nice run that year as, as the season built. Was was he able to take you aside maybe when it were you getting a little frustrated at the beginning and, and say, hey, this is a lot like what I went through, and and just kind of just just keep working at it. It's going to break for you. Yeah, I talked to Ken. He's one of the guys I talked to. He, he helped me a lot. Um, and yeah, he told me his freshman year definitely had ups and downs. Um, and he obviously worked through the downs. And, um, you know, he, he, he definitely was one of the guys I talked to. And, um, that was, that was good to hear, uh, from his side about it. Um, and, you know, I agree. You know, sometimes, you know, hockey will have ups and downs. You try to work through them. And, uh, just, just keep your head down and grind it out. So, yeah, Ken definitely helped. Um, he's one of those guys I looked up to. Someone who committed so early, you know, and uh, for so long you're thinking about putting the L jersey on, right? You know, you you know that you're going there, and and you think about it, and they have this incredible season the year before you go there, right? And uh, when you look back on that year, uh, ultimately, maybe in a few years, maybe in a long time, I mean, what's going to stick out? Is there going to be a moment, a goal, a win? Anything that sticks out about finally putting the jersey on and getting that first season under your belt at Yale? Yeah, I mean, just just that you know, actually, just right away when I got to Yale, the first you know what? First of all, it was awesome seeing the banner um, ceremony. I know my class wasn't involved in that, but just just being a part of that ceremony and being there was awesome. And then, like I said, being my, just my freshman year overall, you. Even if it was a bit of a slow start, it was just—it's it, awesome wearing that yellow jersey. It's still special. It doesn't get old. Um, so I—I I mean, there's—I don't have a specific moment, um, but you know, just just that that freshman year was awesome. I couldn't have asked for a better senior class. Um, trip to when, trip to the White House freshman. is nice, right? Um, so no, it was, it was fun. It's nice to be able to take a trip to the White House your first year. Oh yeah, that was <laughs> that was pretty fun. Win a playoff series, you know, first year. Uh, well, tell yeah. me about your first goal. I remember it. What do you remember about it? And not the exhibition stuff, but your real first college hockey goal. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was a lot of fun um, getting that that first one out of the way. Um, did barn up at Vermont. Um, I remember. I think there's Roof and Coop made a couple of really good plays, and um, you know, fortunately, I put it in the back of the net, and yeah, I was. I had a big smile on. That was a, a good moment. Um, and, you know, after Christmas break, I felt pretty good about my game. So that was, I, I was early January, I'm pretty sure. And um, that was, a, you know, a good 
a good mark uh, marking point, um, you know, for myself. And then moving forward, I you know got a little bit more confidence uh, game after game. Sportscasters are here with John Hayden. Yale forward just got done playing in World Juniors. I'm going to talk to you about that in one second. First, let's go back real quick to the draft. Um, I think I saw you were in final rankings about 29 forward, and I think you were drafted in about the 70s. Uh, long day. Uh, what was it like uh, draft day and um, uh, sitting there and, and the names coming off? Were you getting frustrated? Uh, did you go about when you expected? I mean, I have no idea. Didn't know you then. Didn't know what you were thinking going in. Didn't know what you felt like going out. Uh, tell me a little bit about draft day. Yeah, so draft day was awesome. Uh, and I, I went in with a pretty open mindset. Um, after talking to my advisor and coaches and and, and other guys, uh, the, they, they told me that they thought I'd, I'd probably be somewhere between second and third, um, maybe fourth. Um, they, you know, they didn't, they weren't, they weren't positive because I don't know if anyone's positive, really, um, right. with these things. So I, I th- they thought the most realistic thing was second round, maybe third round. Um, so I went with a pretty open mindset. Obviously, you have to manage your expectations with, the, with these sort of things. And yeah, like you said, the, the 29 ranking was there without European. So I, I wasn't really, true. Yep. I wasn't really thinking too much into the um, the rankings because you know it's it, at the end of the day, it's all about um, you know a team or two liking you and wanting you enough to to pick you so fortunately uh, the Blackhawks um, took me um, and that was an awesome awesome feeling um, you know I couldn't ask for a better organization um, to draft me and you know um, they're obviously one of the best um, organizations in the league and they do an unbelievable job and I've seen it firsthand uh, spending time with them at the, the summer camps um, so yeah that, back to that day that was that was awesome um one of my goals is to get drafted, so getting that getting that done was, was a great feeling. When did you first know that you were on the radar to be a part of the under twenty team? Um, you know, I was invited to the camp um, after the draft, so the, my first year of World Junior eligibility, and I got cut from that camp, and from then on out, I. You know, I knew you know I got cut the first year, so it was time to make a statement and show that I'd be ready for my my last year of eligibility. So you know that whole time, like my mindset didn't really change. It was, you know one of my goals. Um, so that was one of the things I worked towards. And I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, have no doubt that I would be deserving of a roster spot. When did you know you were going to have a roster spot? Like. Was it in, was it not until the final cut was made? Were you were you still not sure? Was it sometime in the in the first camp? I mean, when do you when do you know something like that? So uh, in Boston, um, the camp was, was going pretty well. I got scratched against BU, and right, I yeah. you know kind of thought that might be a good thing, um, just because you know I, if they weren't if they didn't need to look at me in that game, I thought it might be a good thing thing they already knew what I brought to the table. And then um, in Kingston, um, they, they, they let us, a few of us know about the captain positions. And um, that's when I find it was, I'd, I'd done my job. Um, right. So, um, and the announcement was made shortly after. Why do you think they picked you to be a captain? Um, you know, I just think the, 
the three of us uh, had done a, a a pretty good job of you know filling the leadership roles. And you know, one important thing to to, to recognize is that there are so many leaders in that locker room. And it's, I think it's just they picked us three, but you know, there were so many guys that could have had letters on their jerseys for that team. Um, uh, you know, uh, Hudson Fashings, JT Comfort, Tyler Mott, uh, you know, McCosh and Cintini, um, who wasn't on the team, but, you know, he was one of the leadership guys there. So, and I, I, I'm not naming everyone, but there are a lot of guys there, but, you know, I think, uh, just all three of us had been through the program and we knew a lot of the guys on the team well. Um, so, you know, it was, an, it was definitely an honor to, to be named one of the captains. Okay, a couple of things about the tournament. So, first game against Finland, defending champs, not an easy way to have to start that, you know, uh, certainly, and you get down really early. Um, and uh, what was the feeling on the bench through that game, and, and could you feel like kind of the confidence uh, building, and what was it like uh, t- taking through the first game and, and what the mindset was, you know, with the, with the tough, tough draw? It's a tough way to start. It's not like you know, getting to run up the score on Slovakia or whatever Canada did that first day. You know, that's a, this is a real, this is a, this is, you got to bring it that very first day. What what was the mindset and what was it like to get that one that day? Yeah, it was a big test for us. And I'm happy we had a big test right away. Um, you know, we learned from it and that was awesome. Uh, we had, a lot of us uh, at first are, you know, holding our sticks too tight because it's uh, the first time we're really on this, the world junior stage. But, um, you know, we got the win in the shootout, which was awesome. It kind of brought us together as a team. Uh, we stuck with it. You now they scored a fluky one early, and we just kept battling. So that was a, that was a great game for our team. That was a, a part of a learning curve, and uh, you know, getting the first one out of the way just makes the rest of the World Juniors more comfortable. What was it like to be a part of a, a New Year's Eve game against uh, against Canada in Canada of all places, and uh, in Montreal of all? It's one of the best buildings. Uh, in the NHL, and, and certainly a great place to play a game uh, of that stage. Uh, unfortunately, they couldn't sell it out because of uh, some of the politics that they used to try to sell those tickets. So there was some uh, some empty seats, but still, what was it like uh, playing in one of those um, uh, Canada-U.S. games on uh, on New Year's? And uh, why do you think uh, w- what was it about that team that that gave you guys problems? Yeah, that was uh, just that game in general was was a great experience. Um, I don't know how, I don't know how close it was to being sold out. If it was close, but it, it felt pretty packed in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, they're all they're all cheering for for Canada. And you know, sometimes it's fun to be uh, the enemy per se. You know, the, the team getting through. Sometimes that gives you a little bit of a spark. Uh, and it definitely motivated me a little bit. And it was it was fun. You know, a lot of emotion in that game. And, you know, they had a good roster, obviously. They went on to win it all. And um, I don't think that was our best game of the tournament. Um, I think we played our best. Um, uh, not everyone was, you know, and most of us were a, a little bit off of our game. But, um, no, it was a good experience overall. I, again, that that seemed to, to bring us together a little bit, too. Unfortunately, the Russia the Russia game, we ran into some problems. But I think uh, we learned, we definitely learned from that Canada loss. And that Russia, Russia game is so frustrating in the sense that, you know, five on five, it's almost like they couldn't skate with you, really. You know, and if you could have just stayed out of the box. And, and the thing about that tournament, which I try to explain to people when you watch it, is it's notorious for 
how tightly it's called. And uh, certainly you guys felt that, and especially the first period uh, against Russia. Um, talk about how how that game, how that that tournament's officiated compared to uh, compared to uh, all other hockey that you've played in your life. Because it's tight. I mean, it's real tight. Yeah, uh, that was tough. Obviously, we spent the first half of the first period in the box. It's ten minutes of killing penalties, so it's you know hard to get our whole team into the game like that. Um, it's hard to get any momentum going. Uh, five on five, we were fine that game. We felt good, but. Again, the penalties killed us, and you know you, you can't blame it on the refs. Uh, you know, at the end of the no, day, no, they call it the way they call it lost, all the time. Yeah, we lost the game. Um, I didn't think uh, we were going to get any favors anyway going into into Canada. Um, it's just the way it is. So uh, that that one burns. Um, you know, it's definitely lose sleep over a game like that. But what do you, you know? Th- overall, it was a good experience. What do you think it was? What what was it that kept the group from achieving your goals? I I know you were crushed about it. When you look back on it now, having a few weeks, what sticks out? Is it is it just does it just come down to you know we just lost a one goal game in single elimination hockey, or do you look at it a little further and say maybe we didn't find the right guy to play next to to Eichel? Um, you know maybe we didn't do this or that. Is there anything that that make that sticks out and says, "Oh, that that kept us from achieving our goals." Or, or can you just look at it and say, "You know what? We were the better team, really, in the last sixty minutes. We played in that tournament. We just couldn't get that couldn't get that equalizer." And and you know, that's single elimination hockey. Yeah, I mean, I thought we had great players, great coaches, great management staff, and um, I I thought we were definitely um, going all the way. I loved the looks of our team, and like you said. It comes down to one game, no matter we're on there. It's not a series, and you know that's that's all we had one one game. And again, we ran into those penalty troubles, and I thought we played well. We we showed some perseverance and, and came back. Um, and like you said, again, couldn't pull it out at the end. I just you know that we I, I honestly think we spent too much time killing penalties, and by the time we were at our advantages and. And, and started to get our momentum um, play some five on five or, or man up hockey. It felt like we ran out of time. You know, I feel like if we had an extra period there, uh, it's definitely our game. And if we don't run into penalty trouble, it's our game. So uh, again, that was a tough one. You got to be on the ice against you know in Buffalo here. Uh, this whole year in Buffalo, it's all about one thing: trying to finish last. Right? Uh, that's all we talk about. It's a weird yeah. thing when you're cheering for your team to lose. And everyone wants to finish last, so you're guaranteed one of the big guys, right? It's either the guy you played against in McDavid or the guy you played with in Eichel. What can you tell people who listen to the show from Buffalo about these two guys that people who don't have the opportunity to play with and against them don't know? Obviously, they're both great players. Um, whatever NHL teams you get those two players, they obviously have guys that are um, undoubtedly going to have huge impacts um, in a positive way for those those squads. So, um, Eichel, we'll start with um, you know for for all all the, all the people who have never met him, um, he's an awesome kid to start with. He's one of my best friends on our team off the ice, and can't say enough enough good things about him. Um, He's our captain, uh, which is well-deserved, good leader. 
Um, and then, you know, his game is is really, really, really well-rounded. You know, he's got the size. You know, he, he, he's probably the best skater I've ever played with. Um, he's really long, John. He's got really long arms and legs and reach, you know, and it, it sticks yeah, out yeah. how long he is. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got that a few elements that, that you know, kind of, kind of show that he's a power forward, but at the same time his skill and, and shot um, and work ethic is, you know, unparalleled so you know he's he's a very very good overall player and um you know um i mean he's gonna have a, a long career because you know of all his attributes and then mcdavid um i don't know him as well but obviously he's got a lot of skill he, he sees the game really well um and just from seeing him in the world junior tournament um you know it's no surprise that he's there's all the buzz around him because you know he's obviously a great player so now those two are are, are both um special in their own ways uh it's gonna interesting it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out now john i'm watching you closely okay on new year's right you're my buddy yeah. so i'm watching you closely you know on new year's yeah, Eve. of course and uh i see this i see you and you're kind of you're banging that kid around you're chirping him a bit tell me about this yep. and then and then they got guys coming they got to save the the little, the little prima donna there they got to come and get get you what was going on there tell me about that yeah uh, i think that's part of my game uh, yeah is just trying to trying to rattle some guys, um, and you know that's uh, it's almost a compliment that he's one of the guys I was going after a little bit. You know, uh, it's good to, to try to get under his skin. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of emotion in that game, a lot of trips in that game um, coming from both sides. Um, I, I remember what you're talking about uh, a few plays like that, um, and that's just that's gonna happen. You know that's gonna happen. Uh, you've watched a lot of hockey. You've seen that before. Um, so you know that's that's some uh, I expected to happen going into the game. So there's no surprise. All right, let's kind of finish this up. A uh, couple more things I want to talk to you about. Real quick things, though. First, before we get to the real quick things, uh, this weekend it's the second time you got to wear the Yale sweater in Madison Square Garden. Now I know. You're a Blackhawks prospect, but that doesn't change the fact that you grew up in Greenwich. And I know you're a huge Rangers fan. And uh, what was it like to be in the building there and get those couple of games under your belt at the college level before you go on and you play some real games in Madison Square Garden in the future? But tell me a little bit about the rivalry on ice and, and what you think is good or maybe even bad about it. Yeah, that was uh, that was awesome. Um, and it was just, it was still special. Um and obviously I did it last year, but, you know, it's still that special. Um, anytime you get to play in a building like that, um, it's, it's, it's almost surreal. Um, and like, like you said, I, I've been a Rangers fan growing up and I, I've been to that building for to watch games, um, many times and being, being on the ice, um, is special. Um, we got to use the Rangers locker room, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, I was in Marty Sainley's locker, uh, for that game, which, you know, it's pretty cool when that when you get a go through that whole process in an NHL building. So that was fun. Um obviously and couldn't ask for a better game. Harvard's doing really well this year and that's one of the best rivalries in sports. So you know, that's just a great experience overall and I'm looking forward to you know, that being a continued continued event. John, what's wrong with Orzetti? Do we gotta take that kid aside and, and, and teach him about <laughs> uh teach him about respecting Hall of Fame hockey player? What what is it with this double's like comments? Fans, so I don't what was that? Come on, you got to be ribbing him about that, right? Yeah, no, we uh, we definitely talked about that. Uh, that was a topic of 
that was one of the conversation topics uh, <laughs> on the bus and in the locker room. So I thought yeah, he uh, said he was going to put it next to his national championship trophy. I thought he was taking a, a, a sling at uh, at Harvard, Harvard, sort of. Yeah, but because I, you know, you can only sort of hear it. You know what I mean? And and I think my brother Greg was like, I think he said the Devils, and I'm like, oh, that's a whole nother level of chirping. That if that's what he said, uh, you know. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. We can't. Uh, yeah, so he loves scoring in those NHL arenas, though. We'll give him that, right? He, uh, yeah, no. He, he loves scoring those goals in the NHL arena. So what about the rest of the season? Uh, we're, what, 9, 4, and 3, something like that. About 11 in the pairwise, 16-ish conference games left. Um, time to build the resume. I'm going to tell you, it reminds me a lot of where we were two years ago at this time. Uh, but a different team. This team had a lot of questions. Uh, in 2013, the team had a lot of questions in that, uh, especially when Jeff Malcolm was injured, ultimately. Uh, but this year, I mean, arguably the best goalie in the nation. I mean, the defense. OG, I mean, is a stud beyond studs. He might be the, I mean, the best. Oh, man, I love OG. I'm a huge fan of his. And uh, um, the defense, Larkin, as a freshman, has really stepped in, I thought, and played really well on defense. Uh, the other USHL young kid I know is just kind of getting back. We haven't seen his best yet. He had a devastating injury last year. Uh, and then, of course, Tommy Fallon and what he brings. Maybe the best skater in the nation. I love watching him skate. Uh, he's If I could move my feet like him just for one day, you know, it feels so good. But uh, the defense is great. And then you have these forwards, and um, it's it's an interesting mix. And we got to score more goals. We know that. we got to score more goals. But you have the interesting opportunity to kind of – Add a couple of seniors, almost like trade deadline guys here in Anthony and Nico, if they can get back around the time we think they're going to get back. So what about this second half of the year? And I, I talked a lot. I shouldn't have talked that much. I should let you said more of that stuff. But what do you think about the team, and uh, what are you looking forward to here in the second half? No, yeah, it all makes a lot of sense what you're saying, and I agree. Um, I think our team has the potential to go um, as far as possible this year, and it's just a matter of us continuing what we've done well and then improving on what we've not done not so well. and Be more you know, specific, think, John. Be more specific. What what have you done well? What do you need to do better? Yeah, so like you said, our defense uh, has been awesome. Um, you know, I think, think goals against-wise, we're a pretty tough team to play against. Um, you know, it's hard to create a lot against us. Um, and I didn't play in the Vermont game, but I got to watch, and I was just like, uh, pretty, uh, it was pretty clear to me that you know we're a hard team to play against. We, we shut them down pretty well, and then um, so continuing that, and just uh, you know we have good leadership on the team. So you know just just our our, our team is pretty tight knit. So obviously like that that's going to help us. And then you know like you said, we we can improve. Um, it'd be awesome to get those guys back, Days and Weaves. Um, you know. Those guys obviously help our team a lot. And then, you know, like you said, scoring goals, we keep you know, finding chemistry and, you know, creating more offense. That'd be awesome. Um, and then just, you know, bearing down on games. I think we're capable of winning all, all these games we have left. It's just a matter of believing in ourselves and, uh, you know, coming together and getting those wins. So, you know, I'm very, very excited about uh, the run ahead. And I think uh, we're in a good position now and we just have to, you know, not get content ever and, you know, Stay, stay confident at the same time and um, you know, should have some success. So, you know, one thing that was special about the 2013 team, 
and I, I noticed this for, the, for really the first time against Harvard, is when Coach Elaine feels really comfortable with all four lines and is just sort of relentlessly rolling them and you guys get into this four-checking groove and it's just relentless and it's got to be awful to play against and you just kind of wear a team down. It's almost like, it's almost like an Adrian Peterson when he's in the first quarter, he's making these two, three-yard runs, but by the fourth quarter, they're seven and eight, nine-yard runs because he's just wearing guys down. And that's what I think really excites me about the team. And even when I look at how you guys can still improve those four lines, and uh, it's a feeling I didn't always have last year, obviously, which was a little bit of a disappointment, but I kind of feel like this year you can get back into that really efficient Keith Elaine rolling four lines. You have no idea what my first line is. You don't know what my second line is. You don't know what my fourth line is. So it doesn't matter. We're just going to be relentless. And I think that's what was, was what made the 2013 team successful. And that doesn't mean to take anything away from Root, Agostino, and Miller, which obviously was unbelievable. But uh, what about that? No, that was that was well said. I think when we get into that groove of you know getting all the guys into the game and uh, playing that relentless uh, style of hockey, I think it's hard to beat us. So uh, I think it's working for us right now, and so we got to continue that. And we we all trust Coach Lane. He does a great job behind the bench, um, you know, controlling uh, what he does. And you know, I think uh, if we continue to you know stay relentless like that and uh, be hard to play against, it's. Uh, it's going to be a good good end of the season for us. All right. Well, John Hayden uh, plays hockey for the Yale Bulldogs. He's a sophomore there. And you can follow John at Hades, H-A-Y-D-S, 51 on Twitter. Don't expect to follow back because, I mean, a guy like me, I pour my heart and soul out, you know, loving this kid on Twitter. And it doesn't mean he, he doesn't, you know, favor a tweet here and there, but a follow. I, I haven't earned one yet. I'm going to keep plugging away. <laughs> and trying, I'm going to try to earn that follow if I can. I'm going to keep keep working at it. Uh, but you can follow him, obviously, there, and you can watch him and the Yale Bulldogs on Ivy League Digital Network if you'd like to do that or go see them in New Haven. And, uh, John, we want to say thank you for uh, representing our country and, and making me feel really proud uh, to see someone I consider a friend go out and fight for our nation like that. You did a great job. You didn't let me down in any way. I'm so proud of you and uh, proud of the way you represented the team. And uh, I wish I could have said that to you in person, but somehow I just, I just didn't see you this weekend. So I wanted to say that on this forum. And uh, thank you, and um, look forward to uh, enjoying the the next couple of years. Now, let me ask you this: It's kind of like a, a final, a couple of final, real quick things, short things. Do you see yourself as a, a four year bulldog, or could you be one of these guys who is going to maybe have a really tough decision to make at the end of this year and next year, um, or do you feel like you want to be there four years? Of course, you want to be there. You'd want to be there for fifty. So, want isn't isn't the right word, but. Do you think uh, what's best for you as a hockey player is going to maybe mean that you have to leave Yale earlier than uh, you would want to, or or is it just not even a thought? Um, I mean, honestly, I don't think about that too much right now. But I guess to answer your question, it's a it's a year by year process. Year by year. Um, so I just play it year by year and you know control uh, what what's in the present. Um, like you said, I I love it here, Yale. Um, Anyone's played here would want to stay here forever. So, have you been um, featured? Uh, let me let me ask you this: Have you been featured as a campus cutie yet? Have not, but I'm pretty sure Dazer has. Dazer has. I think I read it. I've read a few a few different guys. Now, I think I think Ace was too. Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw that one for sure. Killian. Yep. And I thought there was maybe another one. Now, did, I don't do think you, I was. No. No, that's it. Do you have a miss? Is there a Mrs. Hayden yet? You got a girlfriend over there? 
Uh, the kid's single right now. Kid's single. So what? What does it take to date John Hayden? What, what? What do we need? What do we need? If we're a girl, what do I need to bring to the table? If I was female and I was just happened to be on campus, and I bump into you. What do I need to bring to the table? What's important? Well, well first of all, uh-huh. just to get this out there, Daisy was in the single crew, and you know it's kind of heartbreaking. He's it is. He's, he's locked up now. Yeah, so, a couple things about that. Know. Let me tell you a couple things about that. One, I don't know if he if he's got what it takes. I I don't know. <laughs> I met her. I met if she's look at. He can like whoever he wants. She's a very pretty girl, nice girl. I met her over the weekend. I was hoping that her and my mom would get to get get along a little bit better. She didn't like my mom. That's okay. Uh, Lois is gonna have to live with that. I'm I'm teasing Lois about. I don't I don't really mean that. Uh, <laughs> but I was teasing her about that because uh, she's crazy. But um, I don't think I don't know he if he's got what it takes to stay to stay out of the group. But we'll see. Um, and, uh, yes, he, I, I asked him, so you broke your leg and you got a girlfriend all of a sudden, is it connected? And he thought about it a while. I don't know. So we'll have to see about that, but okay, let's get back to you. We'll tease him more later on another time. What, what, uh, what do I, what do I got to bring to the table? What, how come, you know, I mean, open up here, John, tell me what, what, what are you looking for? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll open up. All right. No Blonde, there, brunette, I, mean, I, I mean, what, uh, what do we need? Butt, boob, legs. I, I don't know. Where are we looking here? I like, I, I like girls in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm nice girls, nice, smart. Where I yell here, everyone's nice and smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't think I don't know if I have a type. I just um, you don't want him to be I, funny, though, right? You're with me on that. You, you don't want funny. Don't try to be funny, right? I mean, you're with me on that. Um, if you're funny, you're funny. Um, so, John, I, know. I, I, I just got married. If you got it. You got it. Listen, I got married in the summer. And uh, my wife and I, we I dated, know you did. Yeah, we dated a long time. She said maybe three funny things in 15 years. Maybe three. <laughs> I mean, that's about it. And I like it that way. You know what I mean? She, she's yeah. maybe said three funny things and, and probably only attempted to say seven. She knows, she just doesn't have it. She's not funny. There's nothing funny about her. So that's a plus for me. I mean, you don't want a funny, you don't want a funny girl, right? I mean, come on. Witty? I mean, you know. I, I, I'm gonna stick to it. If you have it, you have it. All right. Um, so give me some more. What? What else? How come you're single? Come on. I don't know. I just I, right now my girlfriend's school and hockey uh, and the boys. So, uh, you know that's that's like my giant girlfriend. I think you can you can relate to that a little bit. You know, sometimes like yeah. your, your work and, and what you do, and uh, I'm sure Dazer's felt it before. Uh, that's pretty time consuming. So, well, but you also maybe, have to remember he didn't really have someday. pubic hair until last last year. So I mean, he was embarrassed. He didn't want he want a girl to see him that way because I mean he's such a late bloomer. You know what I mean? So I mean, that's, <laughs> that's part of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe maybe Daisy might start a trend here. I don't know. <laughs> All right, but right, I, I I wanted to make you sweat at least a little bit for a minute. It's at Hades on fifty one on Twitter. Thanks a lot. This is long, I know. Hopefully, I didn't take too much of your time, but we have fun. Covered a lot of ground, and I uh, appreciate all the time. I look forward to seeing no, you I mean, uh, in New Haven soon. Anytime. Right, anytime. Thank you very much. You guys are like family to me. So, All right. Don't um, forget me when no, you're running just, the world in the, in the big leagues there because we got to have an NHL player no, on every once in a while. So don't forget me when you're this, up in the this, big leagues. This is, this is a pleasure. So all I right, wouldn't buddy. forget you. All right, buddy. Um, no, I appreciate it. All right. I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks. Take care. All right, I want to thank John Hayden for being on the podcast today. 
Go Bulldogs. Also want to thank the rest of the guests, whoever they may have been, <laughs> for being on the show. We appreciate they it. They were good. They brought it. Oh, yeah. I brought it. My interviewing is just, you know. On point. Yep. Uh, don't forget you can find those great interviews today and all of our other interviews on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And at sports underscore on Twitter. At sports underscore casters on Twitter. Yeah. And at Donald Sports as well on Twitter. All right. Last week, pick four. I went three and one. I went with the Ravens, Seahawks, and Cowboys. Lost with the Broncos. 22-13-1, which is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Don went uh, three and one as well. Seahawks, Cowboys, and Colts. Lost with the Patriots. 20-15-1. Also pretty good. So we're doing pretty decent. Which is good because we always used to hate doing this because we did so bad. Yeah, we used uh, to hover right around 500, which so, like a coin could have beaten us. It's nice to be doing good. So, AFC Championship game. What do you think? Uh, Colts at the Patriots. I think when we started the podcast, we or when we started the we did our football preview show last year, I picked Patriots-Packers. Uh, someone can check on that if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Sounds was my right. pick. Yeah. Um, I think I, I pick Patriots Saints. I think I think I like the Patriots defense maybe as much as Denver's, and I gotta assume that their offense can do a little more than Denver's did, which was anemic. So I'm gonna take the Patriots at home, uh minus the seven. It's a big spread, but I'll I I think the Patriots put it together and get back to the Super Bowl this year. You know, I just think that this is one of those years uh that um Andrew Luck took the next step sure. to get to the AFC Championship game. But I don't think it's the year where he takes another step and gets to the Super Bowl. I think this year is more about Tom Brady having another chance before ending a greatest of all time type career uh, to win his first Super Bowl in 10 years. I don't think they're going to let the opportunity pass up against Luck and the Colts team who has really achieved enough for this season. Uh, so I will also pick the Patriots. And like I said, I picked the Packers at the beginning of the year, so this is kind of more with my heart or gut or whatever. And for some reason, I don't like the Seahawks. I can't figure it out because I like Russell Wilson a lot as a quarterback. I don't hate Marshawn Lynch because he left the Bills, but like as an entity, I don't like the Seahawks. So sorry to Seahawks fans listening. but uh, Thousands. Th- <laughs> Uh, and I love Aaron Rodgers. So give me the pa- the Packers, and I'm getting seven and a half points t- by taking them. So I'll, I, take, I'll take them on the road. I love Aaron Rodgers as well. You never hear me say a bad word about Aaron Rodgers. And I don't like much about the Seahawks. I don't like Marshawn Lynch and the way he treats reporters. <laughs> I don't like Pete Carroll and the way he runs rubs up the score on people. Yeah, I don't like the way they smacked my team around a few times the last few years. And uh, I do like Russell Wilson, though. And um, this isn't about him. It's more about that calf. Yeah. And uh, Aaron Rodgers said in his radio program, it didn't come out any better. It actually came out worse. Uh, but he still has 120 minutes in him. Yep, I did hear that. Yeah. I, uh, I don't like the idea it's worse because it looked really bad already. And there's nothing welcoming about that stadium. It's a hard place to win for a completely healthy Aaron Rodgers in week one when his team was embarrassed by the Seahawks in the opening game. Uh, And I don't know why. I don't know that anything has happened between week one and now 
that would make me think the Packers can be any more competitive in that game, considering that not only is it the same teams and the same field in a bigger stage, but Aaron Rodgers is hurt and maybe hurt uh, worse than we are kind of acknowledging. If anyone can do it, it's him, and I'd love to see it. I'd I'd be gladly taken out here uh, because Aaron Rodgers hobbles around in Quest Field all week and and sends the Seahawks home, but I can't make that pick in good conscience. So I'll take uh, the Seahawks, and uh, we'll be back uh, next week. Miss you, Josh.